crime in me. I've diagnosed some people. I think it's been pretty accurate. Definitely done my fair share of psychiatry work. I've prescribed a few pills, you know. Crime in me. Disclaimer. 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 We are in no way responsible for the things that come out of our mouths. We are not experts, although we may claim to be, so don't take anything that we say too literally. We are not laughing at the crimes, we are laughing at each, each other. other. <laughs> Welcome well, oh. <laughs> to another episode of Crime. We're your hosts, Angela and Matt. And we're going to tell you some fucked up things, perhaps, yeah. most likely. Yeah. It's a yeah, good yeah. good bet. Yeah, mine's pretty, pretty fucked up. And I had never, I'd never heard this before, and it's so crazy. I don't know why, like, more people don't know about this. This is... Ooh. Yeah. So, my sources are from an FBI website, The New Yorker, NPR, Indians mm. with a Z, Dot com. I've definitely Short. used that one before. <laughs> yeah, I got two articles from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortform.com, all that's interesting.com, and the Oklahoman.com. So, on May 24th, 1921, Molly Burkhart. Okay, so this, <laughs> this is going to be like pretty narrative because the articles I got it from, this per- some person wrote a book about it. Hmm. I should have written. So the you're title just gonna down. read. This is bad. So you're just gonna so read the whole book to us. It's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty editorialized. Uh, so shoot, I should have written the book and the author, but I didn't. I'll look it up and like add it or something. It's okay. So we're, anyway. pro- we're professionals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Molly Burkhart, she is part of the Osage settlement town of Gray Horse in Oklahoma, and. She started to get really worried because one of her three sisters, Anna Brown, was missing. Uh, Anna was I mean, 34. Yeah, that would be worrisome. <laughs> Anna was 34 and less than a year older than Molly, and she disappeared three days earlier. Uh oh. She often went on what her family called sprees, where oh. she would like go dancing and drinking oh. with friends. Oh. oh my god, I'm just like imagining her dancing and dancing and dancing on her spree. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Dancing up the town. Quite the spree. Mm-hmm. And then and so yeah, she'd like go out dancing and drinking and they wouldn't really know where she was or whatever, but she's like having a good time. But this time, it, like two nights had passed, and Anna still hadn't shown up on Molly's front stoop like she usually did. So mm. she usually show up at Molly's house and kind of like take off her shoes and like sneak in the house and kind of bumble around or whatever. And then Molly would like take care of her, but she like didn't show up. And Molly had already lost their sister Minnie almost three years earlier. Uh, what? Her death was really quick, and what? doctors had attributed it. Attributed it, a, at attributed, attributed. it. <laughs> that feels weird to say. Uh, to a peculiar wasting illness. Ew. This is gonna be a fun one because I can't. So Where she, she just like she just died. She like wasted away. Just died like what really quickly. The hell. And then Minnie was only twenty seven at the time and was in perfect health. What? Until all of a sudden she just started wasting away and died. Uh, no, no, that doesn't. That's not. Nope. What? Yeah, yeah. 
so yeah, so there are, so Molly, Anna, who's missing, Minnie, who died, and then Rita was the other sister. So there are four of them. So Molly and her sisters were part of the Osage tribe, mm-hmm. which so they were like registered members. They had their name on the Osage roll. Okay. The Osage tribe was originally located in what is today Western Missouri along the Ohio River. They were formidable people, as painter George Caitlin once described them as, at their full growth, are less than six feet in stature, and very many of them six and a half, and others seven feet. Holy shit. Wait, these they are, are giants. The, yeah, they're at the same time well-proportioned in their limbs and good-looking. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> like so the what? tribe <laughs> just like, <okay. laughs> so he's like some are less than six feet some are six and a half and some are seven and they're good looking real <laughs> like, tall okay. real good looking <laughs> various Damn. heights and wow. well-proportioned limbs <laughs> well-proportioned limbs i mean you can't get any better than that that's the compl- compliment everyone is seeking out i'm yeah we're always looking for those good well-proportioned limbs you don't want to be too lanky and you don't want to be too stubby so you gotta you know. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> right so the tribe first encountered europeans in the form of french fur traders in the late 17th century and initial relations proved beneficial to the osage in exchange for hunting animal pelts they received guns and powder from the french which in turn allowed the osage to become the most powerful tribe in the region holy shit yeah they're armed with guns yeah (laughs) i know like just try and fuck with me now could you imagine like okay yeah i'll trade you this pelt for that gun okay i think i'm getting a better deal yeah uh... (laughs) but After the Louisiana Purchase and the arrival of American settlers, the Osage fortunes began to change because American settlers suck. Yeah, you know. In contrast to the French, the Americans were not interested in trading with the Osage, but rather (laughs) in taking the tribal lands for themselves. Yep, that sounds about right. So despite attempts at negotiating treaties with the U.S. to preserve their property rights, the Osage were pushed farther and farther west as the Americans encroached deeper into their territory. Yep. They're like, oh, this so, is nice. We'll take that. Ooh, it's nice lovely. over here, too. We'll take that. Just keep on keep doing back whatever. Up. Back we're up. just going to keep, back like, destroying up. your culture and your people. And oh, whatever. you guys can have that patch of land that's just dirt. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, just wait. So... <laughs> In the early 1870s, the Osage had been driven from their lands, and in the 1800s, President Thomas Jefferson referred to them as that great nation and promised to treat them as their friends. But within a few years, they began to be forced off their territory. But they're of still course. friends. Don't worry. We're still friends. They said they would go. I mean, the U.S. government go. is, like, so honest and truthful. They, like, and never friendly. lie to people. No, never. And never. they're always looking out for, like, the best interest of human beings and not, right. like... You know, corporations and money grubbing. So over two decades, they would have they would have to give up more than 100 million acres of their land. God, the tribe was finally settled in an area spread between present day Kansas and Oklahoma in 1865. And then Congress pressured the Osage to sell their Kansas lands with the 1870 Treaty of Drum Creek. And the tribe was relocated yet again to Oklahoma, where the Osage Nation is still today. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so when depressing. They were, yeah. So when they were pushed off onto Oklahoma, um, 
one of the chiefs, he said, we should go to this territory. It was then Indian territory. We should go there because the earth is rocky and infertile and the white man won't be able to farm there and they'll finally leave us alone. Oh, shit. Which it's like, (laughs) that's so depressing, but like, yeah, true, right? He's like, fine. If they can just, if they'll just leave us alone, like, we'll take it. We can, like, live anywhere. We'll figure it out. But, like, these people suck. Just, like, get them out of here. So the Osage purchased the land. They bought this land from the U.S. government. (laughs) Oh, my God. But the the U.S. government didn't buy any of the land they pushed them off of, did they? Uh, doubtful. Yeah, exactly. So, like, they're like, let's sign this treaty where we'll agree to leave you alone if you take this land. And they're like, okay, we'll sign it. And then the U.S. government's like, what treaty? What? What? We don't know what treaty you're talking about. You must be doing drugs. (laughs) So, uh, okay. So, they got this land that was about the size of Delaware and they resettled there. And by that time, there are only a few thousand Osage people left. Oh, man. The forced migrations had depleted their numbers. They had initially been allotted only the least arable land in the territory, <sighs> and the food supplies promised failed to materialize. Oh, my so God. not only were there like, here, if you just move over here, we promise we'll take care of you. We'll like send food. It yeah. will be like, no, it will be fine. And then they're like, oh, what? Oh, it must have got lost in the mail. We don't we don't have any more food for you. And what oh, we agreement. killed off a lot of your people. Like, oh, wow. Well, that should be better for you. Now you don't have to find as much food. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, what fucking dicks? So many of the Osage people were starving. Um, but then, oh God. lo and behold, that land that they were on that was like useless uh-huh. wasteland was actually sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil oh, in the United States. What? What? Finally. So at that time, there were only about 2,000 Osage who were reg- registered on the tribal roll. And each one of them received a head right, which was essentially a share in the mineral trust. The nice. Osage wanted to make sure that they maintained all the subsurface territory together. Yeah. So after centuries of abuse and broken promises at the hands of the United States government, which happened too many times to count, mm-hmm. the Osage were wise enough to know that they had to move quickly to make the most of their miraculous good fortune. Shit. So, <laughs> In ni- like literally sitting on a gold mine. Yes. <laughs> That's so, so in 1906, thanks to the clever negotiation skills of Chief Big Heart, which... Aww. Aww. Yeah, that's amazing. Congress ratified the Osage Allotment Act that guaranteed mineral rights of Osage territory to tribe members only, meaning Ooh, nice. that the now valuable reserve reservation land could only be inherited and not bought. So it kept the fortune within the tribe. So super smart. Yeah. Super smart. They gave each person a head right and you could not sell or buy a head right. And it was collectively controlled by the Osage. So to obtain (laughs) the oil, prospectors had to pay the Osage in the form of leases and royalties. In the early 20th century, each person on the tribal roll began receiving a quarterly check. The amount was initially for only a few dollars. Mm-hmm. But over time, as more oil was tapped, the dividends grew into the hundreds, then the thousands of dollars. Very nice. And virtually every year, the payments increased until the tribe members had collectively accumulated millions and millions of dollars. Fuck yeah. And that's like among 2,000 people. Yeah. 
In nice. 1923 alone, the tribe took in more than $30 million. Holy The shit. equivalent today of more than $400 million. Oh, my God. In like, 1923. Like, ha stupid Americans thought you're going to put us on this land that's worthless. Idiots. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, that's I mean, cool. seriously, like, how much do these people have to suffer where, like, you know, thousands of their people are murdered and they were tried, they like attempted yeah. murder of like starvation and basically oh, genocide, okay. taking away their culture and their land yeah. and you know yeah so like literally the moving were... them from where they their land like where they grew up where they had roots and being like nope move we're taking that and we're taking that well, yeah and we're taking that where they knew the land where they knew the resources where they knew how to like live mm-hmm. with. With what they're with the natural resources there, and like, yeah, and instead we just like depleted everything. And well, no wonder we haven't heard much about this. So, (laughs) it doesn't really make the U.S. look good. (laughs) The nothing does, nothing does. What makes the U.S. look good? What has Mm. ever made the U.S. look good? I've yet to find anything, (laughs) yeah. The Osage were considered the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Holy shit, in the world! Wow, so all right. Oh, and I just want to say, like, there are certain things in this, like, from articles of the time, and I may not say what they say because it's very offensive, but I might say some of it just to show, like, how racist people were. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. There's, like, derogatory terms and, like, it's, like, not good. Right. Well, you could, you know. We could bleep yeah. some out if it's offensive. I mean, it is right. offense. It's going to be offensive. I mean, it's but, all offensive. I mean, see, <laughs> Let's yeah. bleep the whole thing. <laughs> Let's just bleep it out. Yeah, just one long bleep. Okay. So the New York Weekly Outlook exclaimed, Lo and behold, the Indian, instead of starving to death, enjoys a steady income that turns bankers green with envy. What? Lo and behold? <laughs> like, oh, we really thought we had them. We thought we backed yeah. them into a corner and they were just going to all yeah. die. Wow. Yeah. But now they're richer than bankers. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So the public had become transfixed by the tribe's prosperity, which belied the images of American Indians that could be traced back to the brutal first contact with whites, the original sin from which the country was born. (laughs) Reporters tantalized their readers with stories about the plurocratic Osage and the red millionaires, which... (laughs) What? Like, okay. Oh, my God. Ew. With with their brick and terracotta mansions and chandeliers and with their diamond rings, fur coats, and chauffeured cars. Fuck yeah. One writer marveled at Osage girls who attended the best boarding schools and wore sumptuous French clothing as if... (laughs) Why does all my shit have French in it? Okay. (laughs) As if... Un très joie of Paris Boulevards had inadvertently strayed into this little reservation town. Mm. So these people are looking good. They're like in the finest of clothes. And it sounds I like I read that if, like it, from what if I'm correct, they're they're not like doing any bra- backbreaking work. They're just collecting on a on a dividend from people. Yeah, they're other people renting paying their to land. use the land. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're Sick. renting their land and getting money. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, yeah. They're living a good life on this, Hell like, yeah. horrible land. Like, thanks so, for that, America. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, fucking Americans. We could have just been trading like we were with the French, but yeah. you had to be, like, dicks about it. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> I also read that, like, at this time, different families would have, like, you know, like, multiple cars, like, seven of cars course. or whatever. And then they're being yeah. driven around for them by people. They're, like, being chauffeured. And people were, like, super jealous of, like, what was happening. Where it's, like, you have no right to be jealous. This is their land. This is their country. And... You have no right to be jealous. You, like, you guys were the ones that caused this. If it hadn't been for yeah. you and your selfish, greedy ways, the, yeah. they would not have gotten these riches. So go fuck yeah. yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So at the same time, reporters seized upon any signs of the traditional Osage way of life, which seemed to stir in the public's mind vision of wild Indians. Oh, my God. One article noted a circle of expensive automobiles surrounding an open campfire where the bronzed and brightly blanketed owners are cooking meat in a primitive style. It's like, that sounds like a bonfire. It sounds amazing. What? you're talking about that's like the fourth of july everyone's just around some kind of fire pit we all do that with a blanket like fuck god damn it okay put a hot dog on a stick that's like what's more american, american. than that yeah. you know wow. so primitive like wow. what the fuck so another documented a party of osage arriving at a ceremony for their dances in a private airplane okay <laughs> a scene that outrivals the ability of the fictionist to portray. So, <laughs> summing up, summing up the public's attitude toward the Osage, the Washington Star said, "The lament, lo, the poor Indian, might <sighs> appropriately be revised to ho, the rich redskin." What? So these are things that are written in newspapers. What? What? It's like, like, oh, they went from like the poor Indian to now they're like rich. I'm like, it's like, oh, they 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 don't know how to. They're not gonna know how to deal with their riches because they're just oh, poor Indians. Just and they don't under, wait. They don't. They're not smart. Oh my god. Just wait. Disgusting. Just wait. Okay. All right. So well. <laughs> of course, the ever trustworthy U.S. government mm-hmm. only Pink, looking out for they, the people. They pinky sweared something. They decided somehow. That the Osage were not capable of handling their money. Oh. Like exactly what you just yep. said. Yep. <laughs> so at the, during this time, white people who are like in the oil business yep. are like blowing through money and going bankrupt like yeah. all the fucking time. And yet these people can't handle their money. No, they don't know how. So, did you see them? They had a circle of cars at a campfire. What do you expect? They had like nice cars around a campfire. They're, they're cooking like, on a food. Yeah, they're cooking on a fire. Like that's that's... Jeez, I mean, don't they know they could just cook in their home or in their stove and stuff? So the member members of the U.S. Congress, they would like they were like debating as if the na- the nation's security was at stake and they're scapegoating the Osage about because they were like wealthy. Mm-hmm. So they were like debating like, what do we do about like these indigenous people? Now all of a sudden they have money and like they're going to come after us or I don't yep. know what they were thinking. Like I would come after you for sure, but I don't think that that's what they were doing. They were just obviously like living life. Sounds like they're living pretty peacefully, enjoying their yeah. riches and just cele- like celebrating what they can, what's left of their um Yeah, like, and then community. still like some of them were still like like doing their ceremonial dances and you know like which is leave like them alone just leave them the up the fuck alone but also i mean how many of those people were going to church and watching their ceremonial shit happen yeah of the white yeah. people like yeah. it's the same fucking thing you know you everyone has like traditions and ceremonies in their cultures except i'm gonna put it 
out there that I feel like a lot of indigenous cultures are a lot more uh, loving and yeah. peaceful in well, their it's a lot more about traditions and teachings. Nature and being <laughs> like the circle of life not and that taking you were, care of earth. Not that you were, were born as a sinner and you need to <laughs> repent and like there's a and man. Hate everyone and <laughs> Yeah, you gotta hate everyone that's different from you and repent, repent, and then like, you know, get molested by your priest and uh right. circle of life. Repent some more. Okay. Yep. So so the U.S. government's like, we're, our whole nation's security's at stake. We can't let this, this like, peaceful people have money. No. Even though it's they our don't fault, know how to whatever. Deal with money. Anyway. They don't even know what money is. So, so this is what they did. Oh, God. They imposed restrictions. According how? to federal it's their law. land. I know. What? According to federal law, full blood Osage were required to have guardians to manage their <gasps> financial. White wealth. guardians? And to disperse their money to them. What in the actual... F- how is this happening? How what, yeah. How can they impose that? It's not their land. So the law was based on the premise that full-blood Indians... And I know it's not... I know that's yeah, I not know, like... You're, you're saying it because of what the papers... What this said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I should have changed... You're not thing. saying Indians. They're saying Indians. Could not manage their own finances. <sighs> So one Osage World War One veteran oh said, God. I fought in France for this country, and yet I'm not even allowed to sign my own checks. Oh, my God. What? How is this even happening? How are they How part of the federal possible? government? I don't understand. How is it possible? So it led to a culture of graft and exploitation as guardians sought ways to profit from the people they were charged with protecting. God damn obviously, it. God damn it. Obviously. They got one good thing and never, and then they had to yeah. ruin it again. Yeah. The U.S. government so sucks. It's like no ugh. one's allowed to have anything without the wealthy getting their, like, greedy little mitts on it. Yep. Like, fuck off. Just let everyone live their lives. Like, stop. And, and like, but surprise, clearly this has been surprise, happening though, for fucking it's, ever. It's not just the wealthy. It's the white wealthy. Because these Native Americans or indigenous people had money. Mm-hmm. But they weren't looking to get money off of the. That's just it. Americans. That's the exact thing, though. It's like, it's like the one person who said like the rich redskins or whatever. It's like, if you're a millionaire, mm-hmm. but your skin color is different from ours, mm-hmm. then you're not, the you're not the same as like a white millionaire. Yeah. Well, like it's not equivalent. You just, even though it's because, like you know why it is. You just you just like stumbled upon the money. It's like you know you're just like a dumb puppy dog who just stumbled upon money and you're just but like not that in your though. Money and you don't know what to do with it. But not that, though, because even if a white person stumbled upon their money and bought some land with some oil, then they would have been, like, hailed as, like, this, like, amazing... Look at fucking Sutter, who, like, stumbled upon gold, and now it's like, oh, my God, this amazing man who just, like, you know? That's true. God rewarded him. But it's, like, these people, it's, like, because because their skin color is different, I don't know, they, they like... They're not allowed to have success. They're not allowed to have money. They're not allowed to take care of themselves and their families. It's just like so disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> it's it's so disgusting. disgusting. And it still happens to this day. Yeah, it does. So guardians were often businessmen who would and white who would report purchases made by their charges that actually had never been made in order to hide their own theft. And other guardians would force their charges to purchase goods from them at inflated prices. It's like, Oh my God. (laughs) 
It's like, I've got a great idea. These people have money mm -hmm. and they're buying things they want to buy. But now let's get other people to be a middleman mm -hmm. between them and their money. And then those people can make bad choices of spending their money on shit that doesn't even... Well, that they don't even want. They're going to be making better decisions because they're the white man and, and not the red man or whatever they say. Mm -hmm. Like that's ugh, mm -hmm. ugh, ugh. Mm -hmm. I want to throw up. Yeah, yeah, this is bad. So because of the mandate that Osage wealth could travel solely through inheritance, white settlers went so far as to infiltrate Osage families through marriage. <sighs> And either enjoy the spoils of their spouse or murder those family members who remain between them and potential wealth. Fuck. And I'm so sure by that they the were early... asking them if they wanted to get married. I'm sure they were writing up their own marriage decree and being like, oh, see, we're married. You you guys <laughs> well, here don't actually know what marriage is. So, like, <laughs> we're... Oh, my God. I just... I feel like, you know, if you're just a human being living your life, and you meet someone who happens to be of a different ethnicity or cultural background from you. Mm -hmm. And you like strike up, you know, a relationship that's Fine. like, yeah. you know, and you're unsuspecting because you think like, oh, this person just thinks I'm a person and we're just like getting along. You know, I feel like I'd be like super unsuspecting of like, oh, obviously this white person's coming to me because they want to like steal my money. I'd be more like, really? oh, like let's After all be the friends or whatever. After the history that you've had. I mean, them, I don't know. Yeah, I would not I trust know. a single white person if I was them and like was constantly being pushed away and taken advantage of. I wouldn't. Well, I just, I don't know. I feel like. I don't know, like on a smaller level, maybe where you're looking at the individual and not like where they're coming from, because then that's like kind of the whole issue, isn't it? Where it's like you're grouping everyone together. Yeah, it is the issue. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. But I don't think so. I mean, just the way that things are going about and then them imposing some kind of law that says like, oh, well, now you can't deal with government, though. Right. But don't you think that these white oil tycoons that are coming in trying to make more money are not part of the U.S. government? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can see, I can see like if I were in that situation and I was like an indigenous person and then I was just like living my life and then I happened to meet like some white dude and he was like a really nice guy and we actually like got along. I don't know that I would be like, I don't know. I would assume that like they, he's there after would be, my money. I mean, maybe I mean, I would assume that there would be stories passed down of how they've been taken advantage of and pushed off their well, land. For and sure. stuff. So I feel like you would have a little bit of a little caution when meeting yeah. someone outside of your your tribe. Yeah. I could see that. But if you're like young and naive and you I just want to like know. you're I like fuck mom and dad. They don't know what they're talking about. I, I don't know. Maybe I, don't know. I just anyway. have a hard time thinking that cuz there's like so many eligible bachelors in your own like world. They like why would I just think I that know. I think that some I think some of the marriages were like legit. Legitimate. Okay. I think some of them were. Okay. But, I mean, who knows, really? So, by the early 20th century, the oil rush instigated a flood of intermarriages that were, a lot of them were white men who wanted a taste of that wealth. They wanted that money. So, Greyhorse was one of the reservation's oldest settlements. The other outposts included Fairfax, which was a larger neighboring town of nearly 1,500 people, and Pawhuska, which is the Osage capital, with a population of more than 6,000. Wow. So the streets were clamored with cowboys, fortune seekers, 
bootleggers, soothsayers, medicine men, outlaws, U.S. marshals, New York financiers, Oof. and oil magnets. So it's like bumbling, I mean bustling. Bumbling <laughs> and bustling. Towns. Although I would say, okay, if you're like an oil tycoon and you're already making a lot of money selling the oil to mm-hmm. the United States, and then you got married to someone that's making money right. off of it, like, you could make so much money. <laughs> yeah, you could. So there were restaurants and cafes and opera houses and polo grounds, and it's just like, you know, they're, it's like a good place to live at this point. Okay. They've got, like, stuff going on. So Molly didn't spend lavishly as some of her neighbors did. She had built a beautiful wooden house in gray horse near her family's old lodge Mm -hmm. um she owned several cars and had a staff of servants well okay (laughs) um many of the migrant workers called servants who worked for indigenous people the indians pot lickers ew (laughs) ew ew (laughs) oh my god so these people are just trying to make money and just trying to live their lives, and then people are like, oh, you're serving indigenous people? Like, mm, let's create a slur for you. It's like, oh, great. Because it's okay if <laughs> like, we what? white people have indigenous people working for us. That's fine. Yeah, but when that's someone fine. else of a different skin color has people working for them, that's yeah. like what you, you might as well just be like a fucking flea. But, ugh. Right. So the servants were often black or Mexican, and in the early 1920s, a visitor to the reservation expressed contempt at the sight of even whites performing all the menial tasks about the house to which no Osage will stoop. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, how insulting that a white person would, like, clean the house. Oh, my God. Imagine. (laughs) That's disgusting. (laughs) So gross. So Molly was one of the last people to see Anna before she vanished. That day, May 21st, Molly had gotten up at like dawn and then she she always got up at dawn because her father used to pray every morning to the sun, mm. which is beautiful. Her husband, Ernest Burkhart, rose with her. He was a 28-year-old white man. I was going to say, Ernest, he... that's not a very uh, <laughs> indigenous name. Ooh. <laughs> Apparently, he was like a handsome cowboy type. <laughs> he grew up in Texas, the son of a poor cotton farmer, and he'd been enchanted by tales of the Osage Hills. Hmm. So in 1912, at the age of 19, he'd packed a bag and went to live with his uncle, who was a domineering cattleman named William K. Hale, who lived in Fairfax. Hmm. He was not the kind of man who asked you to do something. He told you, mm. Ernest once said of Hale, who became his surrogate father. Hale was a widely respected businessman and influential force in the county, having made his fortune in the cattle business. Known as the King of the Osage Hills, Mm-mm. Hale's business interests were firmly entrenched throughout the county. He had powerful political connections and was even a reserved deputy sheriff in the town of Fairfax. Gross. The county prosecutor himself owed his election to Hale. In an era when many white authority figures used their status to exploit and abuse the Osage, Hale positioned himself as a benevolent, if somewhat paternal figure, which Mm. is so gross. He's like, I'll be like the white father to save you all because you're so young and you don't know what to do with your lives and your money. (laughs) 
I mean, you're not a white person. You don't know how to like you just live. Don't know. You just don't understand like standards of living because like of how to like use what? and abuse other people yeah. and just manipulate and be a horrible human being. Okay. Yucky, yucky. His philanthropy had supported the establishment of charities, schools, and hospitals for the Osage, and he vowed to Molly and her mother that he would see justice done for Anna Brown. Hmm. Okay. So Ernest, when he first moved there, he mostly ran errands for Hale, and he sometimes worked as a livery driver, which is how he met Molly, chauffeuring her around town. Oh. Ernest had a ten- tendency to drink moonshine <laughs> and play... Indian stud poker with men of ill repute, (laughs) but beneath his roughness, there seemed to be tenderness and a trace of insecurity, and Molly fell in love with him. Okay. Born a speaker of Osage, Molly had learned some English in school. Nevertheless, Ernest studied her native language until he could talk with her in it. Wow. That's okay. That's impressive. So, I mean... That's what I, I mean. If you fall well, in love with someone... But you also, know, he's and not... And he seemed decent. But he, like, but he's also not... I mean... He's not someone that had a bunch of money. He if he's if he's driving her around and he came from like a poor cotton farm basically and he's yeah working but wouldn't you be suspicious uncle. of that though where it's like he's not necessarily. I mean I'm like if you're digger. if you're willing to drive me around and not you know make a scene about it and make me feel like I'm less than you and you're learning my language. It may be like he like treats her with respect exactly yeah, and learned her language exactly. Like I feel so... like you, you would feel I don't know. I don't know. It's an individual thing, right? It I seems think like it is he's he's fine so far. I don't want to so jump far. ahead, but <laughs> so uh, Molly also had diabetes, and he would take care of, take care of her. Hmm. And he, oh, after he heard another man had affections for her, he muttered that he couldn't live without her. Wow. So it wasn't easy for them to marry. Ernest's roughneck friends ridiculed him for being a. So this is one of the things I don't know. Uh-huh. For being a derogatory term for women, indigenous women, man. <laughs> and Great. though Molly's three sisters had wed white men, she felt the responsibility to have an arranged Osage marriage the way her parents had. Mm. But Molly, whose family practiced a mixture of Osage and Catholic beliefs, couldn't understand why God would let her find love only to take it away from her. So in 1917, she and Ernest got married. Okay. In 1921, they had a daughter named Elizabeth, who was two years old. Oh, yeah. And then, so in 1920, they had, they didn't, she didn't give birth to To a two-year-old. Elizabeth was two years old. And they had a son, James, who was eight months old and nicknamed Cowboy. (laughs) Which, okay. Molly also took care of their their mother, Lizzie, who had moved into the house after Molly's father had passed away. Um, but because Molly had diabetes, Lizzie once was afraid that she would die young, that Molly would die young and wouldn't be able to, like, take care of her. Wait, but Lizzie then Molly is was the, one, the mother of the, mom. Of, of the dude? Of... Molly, Anna. Oh, okay. Mil- Minnie and Rita. Okay. But Molly was the one who took care of everyone. Right. She, like, looked after everyone. So, May 21st, it was supposed to be a really good day. She, Molly, was going to have guests over, and she was, like, having a small luncheon, Mm -hmm. super fancy. Um, Lizzie had fallen ill earlier, so she stayed in bed the whole time. Mm. But Molly asked Ernest to call Anna and see if she'd come over to help 
take care of Lizzie for a change because she's like, I just want a day off. Like, come yeah, on over. Yeah, doing all the work. So, it's your mom too. Get over here. Yeah. And Anna was the oldest. Oh. So she's like, her mom, like, you know, she's like special in her mother's eyes because mm-hmm. she was like the oldest. Are you saying that like I'm special in, my, in our You know how I feel because... about your relationship with mom and how I think that you're her favorite <laughs> and I always have. You know this. It's just Why are you rubbing you, it it's in? It's just because you guys are the same person, so you butt heads a lot. <laughs> Damn it, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so Molly like would take care of Lizzie, but mm-hmm. then Lizzie would spoil Anna because yeah. it was like kind of her favorite. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh-huh. so Ernest calls up Anna and, and he's like, your mom needs you. And then she's like, okay, I'll be right there. I'm going to grab a taxi and then I'll be right there. So then shortly after she arrived mm-hmm. and she was in a bright red shoes and a skirt and a matching Indian blanket. Mm-hmm. In her hand was an alligator purse. And Molly there a noticed, song however. About an alligator purse? I think it was like really popular oh. thing. Okay. It was like super fancy to have an alligator purse, sure. but there was. Okay. Some lady had an alligator purse. Right. You're right. There's a song. Some kind of alligator purse song. Anyway. Like a little children's yeah. thing. Anyway, so Molly noticed, however, that she was kind of stumbling a little bit and her words were a little slurred and drunk. Anna had been drinking. A little of the moonshine. I guess Anna liked her whiskey. Ah, a woman after yeah. my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> So some of the guests had already arrived. Um, among them were two of Ernest's brothers. So in this one, it says Brian, mm-hmm. but in like later on, it says Byron. <laughs> ah. So it's either Brian or Byron okay. and Horace, which... Wow, that sucks. Yikes. <laughs> Horace Burghardt, <laughs> who... They moved to Osage County to assist Hale and his ranch, and they were lured by that black gold. Mm. One of Ernest's aunts, who spewed racist notions about indigenous peoples, was also visiting. Oh, nice. So fun. Uh, a nice <laughs> Invite her hands. over. Yeah, she's always fun for a laugh. <laughs> so, uh,. Anna comes in, she takes off her shoes, and she began making a scene. Mm. She took a flask from her bag and opened it, <laughs> insisting that she needed to drain the flask before the authorities caught her. Oh, what? Because it was a year it was a year into prohibition, so oh, she wasn't really allowed to shit. have it. Okay. So then she goes around and like offers swigs to different people of what she called the best white mule. Well, <laughs> so she's uh, she's a partier. She likes to share. She she's getting likes a to party drunk on her white mule. <laughs> yeah, she's sharing though. That's I nice. mean, yeah. So she's so like, I Molly didn't. Br- sorry, that- I didn't bring a potato salad or a, a macaroni salad, but I brought a flask that we could pass around. And we gotta drink it fast <laughs> before we get caught. <laughs> so everyone take a swig. <laughs> nice. Okay. So Molly knew that Anna was having a bit of trouble lately. She was kind of in a bad spot. She had recently divorced her husband, mm. who was a settler named Oda Brown, Oda. and he owned a livery business. I should have looked it up. I don't know what a livery is. Isn't it like something about horses, cows? Because Ernest was like a livery driver, and Oda Brown has a livery business, and I meant to look it up, but then we've been without internet for days, and that's not an excuse. I just didn't look it up when I had the time. <laughs> Synonyms: cabbie, cab driver, cabman, hack driver, oh. hack driver, okay. taxi driver, taxi man. What, what does a weird name! Mean? Oh, maybe it's like delivery, but they like <laughs> drop the duh, so it's livery. 
<laughs> I'm your livery driver. Uh, yeah. Okay. So he's a driver. So since then, she had spent more and more time in the reservation's tumultuous boom towns, which had sprung up to house and entertain oil workers. Hmm. Towns like Whizbang. <laughs> cool. Where it was said that people whizzed all day and banged all night. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Party town. <laughs> uh, down with and a, a U.S. government official reported, all the forces of dissipation and evil are found here. Gambling, <laughs> drinking, adultery, lying, thieving, and murdering. So like I said, party town. <laughs> yeah, so Anna liked to hang out there. One of Anna's servants later told the authorities that Anna was someone who drank a lot of whiskey and had very loose morals with white men. Okay. Thanks, servant. Yeah, well, okay. Well, I mean, I don't. I hate that because it's like having a good time. yeah. I hate that because it's like just because she was a woman and like a woman of color, it was like oh look at her being a floozy. It's like no, she was just yeah. fucking having a good time. She's allowed to make her own decisions. She was just living her life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Who cares and, if that's and, what she wants to do? She was in a bad spot. Who's not had a breakup and drunk a little too much alcohol? You know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) just feel like that's just what happens. So at Molly's house, Anna began to flirt with Ernest's younger brother, Brian or Byron. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not sure which. Whom she'd sometimes dated. Uh, He was more brooding than Ernest. He, a lawman who knew him described him as a little roustabout. Oh, sounds like her type. I mean, she sounds like a yeah. little roustabout as well. She's a little roustabout. When Byron, I'm just going to say Byron. Yep, that's fine. It sounds more old I'm going to choose one. I'm going to go with Byron. Okay. It sounds more like, yeah, okay. you know, West, Old West. like Right, and they spelled Brian with a Y, so I feel like it's Byron. Byron. Yeah, let's go with Byron. They're just like, uh, yep. what's the word? Interchange the R and the Y. Yep, they're dyslexic like me. Okay. Okay. So when Byron asked one of the servants at the luncheon if she'd go to a dance with him that night, Anna said that if he fooled around with another woman, she'd kill him. Oh, (laughs) wow. She's feisty. (laughs) Yeah, she is. But I mean, like, what a dick. He's like, he like dates her sometimes. Then he like asks uh, someone in front of her if they want to go to a dance. And she's like, fuck off. That's true. But we don't know what their actual. This is my sister's house. We don't know what their relationship was. If they were just like people that would hook up every once in a while and have fun. Like, I don't. You know. I'm just saying, you're invited to your sister's house for, like, a fancy luncheon. You don't ask out, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's just you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's just me. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, and then while this is all happening, Ernest's aunt was muttering loudly enough for all to hear about how mortified she was that her nephew had married an uh, indigenous slur. Uh, an indigenous person. <laughs> but she wasn't nice Charming. So, Anna then proceeded to fight with the guests. She (laughs) fought with her mother, and she fought with Molly. Uh, A servant later told authorities she was drinking and quarreling. I couldn't understand her language, but they were quarreling. Mm -hmm. The servant added, they had an awful time with Anna, and I was afraid. Oh, okay. She's getting... Volatile. Too much of that whiskey. (laughs) Whiskey makes you rowdy. I'm just, you know. It it just does. Yes. So that evening, and when you feel like Molly, you've been slighted by your lover yeah. or whatever they were, yeah, of yeah. course you're gonna be like upset. You just got divorced. I just feel like that was a real dick yeah, move. You're just getting out of a divorce or whatever, and then this guy is yeah. like slighting you, and you're drinking. 
Yep. In your own sister's house. Shit's like, going to get rowdy. And yeah. you have aunt so-and-so being like, slur, slur, slur. <laughs> yeah. and you're like, great. <laughs> Why was she even invited? Like, <laughs> yeah. leave her at home. Ugh. So that evening, Molly planned to look after her mother while Ernest took the guests into Fairfax, five miles to the northwest, to meet Hale and see Bringing Up Father, which was a touring musical about a poor image. Imish, Irish immigrant who wins a million dollar sweepstakes and struggles to assimilate into high society. Oh, God. <laughs> what a great And then musical. they had to have someone tell him how to deal with his money because well, he'd never had money before, so he doesn't know. But, oh, wait, he's white. Yeah, I feel like he could pass as white, even though the Irish weren't considered white until, that's true. you know, that's a certain true. year. But I think during this time they were white, so he was probably more readily accepted. Anyway. So... So, so Ernest takes everyone and leaves. Byron offered to drop Anna off at her house. Okay. So before they left, Molly washed Anna's clothes, gave her some food to eat, and made sure that she had sobered up enough so that she like recognized, like, okay, you're going to be okay if I just like mm-hmm. send you home. So then Anna said goodbye, and uh, that was like the last that Molly saw of her. Okay. And with each passing night, Molly grew more and more anxious. Byron insisted that he'd taken Anna straight home and dropped her off before heading to the show. After the third night, Molly, she pressured everyone into action. She dispatched Ernest to check on Anna's house. Ernest jiggled the knob to the front door, and it was locked. From the window, the rooms inside appeared dark and deserted. Mm. Anna's head servant, who lived next door, came out, and Ernest asked her, do you know where Anna is? The servant said... She stopped by Anna's house to close any open windows before it started raining, and I thought the rain would blow in, she explained, but the door was locked, and there was no sign of Anna, so she was gone. Okay. That's not good. There's water happening. That's like the rain. (laughs) (laughs) Good sound effects. So, news of her absence coursed through the boom towns, traveling from porch to porch, from store to store. Fueling the unease were reports that another Osage, Charles Whitehorn, had vanished a week before Anna had. Uh-oh. Charles was 30 years old. He was genial and witty. He was married to a woman who was part white and part Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. A local newspaper noted that he was popular among both whites and the members of his own tribe. <laughs> oh. <laughs> On May 14th, he left his home in the southwestern part of the reservation for Pahuska, and he never returned. Uh-oh. So, so still, like, Molly was kind of like, maybe I shouldn't panic. Like, Anna has kind of gone off before. Maybe she, like, left after Byron dropped her off, and she just kind of, like, snuck away and then went to Oklahoma City yeah, or across the border to Kansas City. Maybe she City. was, like, so upset with what happened that she's just blowing off steam somewhere. Yeah, or maybe she's like, fuck you guys, I'm going to go dancing. She liked to go to jazz clubs and dance. Um, So even if Anna had run into trouble, she knew how to protect herself. She often carried a small pistol in her alligator purse. Cute. (laughs) And Ernest reassured Molly that she'll be back home soon. So a week after Anna disappeared, an oil worker was on a hill a mile north of downtown Pasca, when he noticed something poking out of the brush near the base of a derrick. Oh, no. And a derrick, I think, is those big drill, the big oil drill things. I think that's what a derrick is. So the worker came closer, 
It was a rotting corpse. Oh, no. Between the eyes were two bullet holes. Oh, no. The victim had been shot execution style. Shit. Other people gathered around the body, which was so badly decomposed that it was impossible to identify. Fuck. Uh, but one of the pockets had a letter, and someone pulled it out, straightened the paper, and it, re- and then read it. Mm-hmm. And the letter was addressed to Whitehorn, so that's how they first knew it was him. Okay. Around the same time, a man was squirrel hunting by Three Mile Creek near Fairfax with his teenage son and a friend. While the two men were getting a drink of water from a creek, the boy spotted a squirrel and pulled the trigger. Uh-huh. He shot the poor squirrel. And he chased after it, making his way down a steep wooded slope into a gulch. He found the squirrel and picked it up, and then he screamed. Mm. By the time his father reached him, the boy had crawled onto a rock and gestured toward the mossy edge of the creek and said, a dead person. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is like my nightmare, just like stumbling upon a dead body in the woods or something. Yes. I feel like it's going to happen every time I go out of my house. I'm scared. <laughs> I mean, it could really where you are. I mean, everywhere. Ugh. Also, yeah, I love hiking and I love all that. And that's like Ugh. prime territory. Yes. So. Oh, my God. There, there was a, the body of what appeared to be a woman mm-hmm. and an indigenous woman. She was on her back and her hair was twisted in the mud mm. and her, she was like facing up oh to God. the sky. The men and the boy hurried out of the ravine and raced to Fairfax's main street, but they couldn't find any lawman. No lawman. So they stopped at the Big Hill Trading Company, which was a large general store that had an undertaking business as well. Oh, well, you know, I mean, sell some pickaxes, <laughs> you general sell some what water, they do. <laughs> cabbages, you need a, a coffin, we got that. What, what do you need? Okay. You need us to embalm a body so you can <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, make that happen. Take it around back. Got someone that Buy can your own formaldehyde. Do it yourself. Oh, yeah. It's up to you, man. We got it all. Oh, I'm just imagining so, it like a Costco where they have samples. Where there's like a dead body on a table. Like, <laughs> look at how well we embalmed him. You can tell that we are skilled in our trade. This body has been embalmed for 10 years. Yeah. And it looks brand new. <laughs> Damn. Okay. <laughs> Gross. Gross. So... They told the proprietor, Scott Mathis, what had happened, and he alerted his undertaker, who went to with several men to the creek. There, they rolled up the body onto a wagon seat and, with a rope, dragged it to the top of the ravine, Oof. then laid it in a wooden box. The undertaker tried to determine if the woman was Anna Brown, whom he'd known, mm-hmm. The body was decomposed and swollen almost to the point of bursting Oof. and very malodorous, he recalled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. He and the other men couldn't make an identification, but Mathis, who managed Anna's financial affairs, contacted Molly, and she led a bunch of people to the creek, and amongst them was Ernest Byron, Molly's sister Rita, and Rita's husband Bill Smith. Mm-hmm. So it was hard for Molly and Rita to discern if the face was Anna's oh my God. because there was basically nothing Can't, left. Uh, and this is your sister that you've ne- like you know better than I the know. back of your hand what she looks like. I know. Ooh. But they did recognize her blanket mm. and the clothes that she that Molly had washed for her. <gasps> 
And the then cl- Rita's the same husband... clothes that she was wearing the day she went missing. Yeah. Great. Then Rita's husband, Bill, took a stick and pried open her mouth. Oh, and no. they could see Anna's gold fillings. Ugh. That is sure enough Anna, Bill said. It was so sad. Oh, God. That's so gruesome. So... At this time, there was a great deal of lawlessness in the U.S., and particularly in that region, which was really the last remnant of the Wild West or the frontier. Mm -hmm. So you had a local lawman and you'd have a sheriff, but the typical sheriff back then had no training in scientific detection, (laughs) and there was also a great deal of corruption. Yep. I mean, honestly, though, how much different is that? Still kind of the same. <laughs> it was very easy for the powerful to buy the law. Yeah, so okay, so same. And to tilt the scales of justice. Mm, so things have Molly, not changed since the 1920s. Great. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Molly Burkhart obviously pleaded for justice, crusaded, and she worked really hard. Mm-hmm. But the white authorities really didn't do much very early on, partly because the victims were indigenous yep. people. Uh, and there was an enormous amount of prejudice, obviously, mm-hmm. as we've learned from some of the slurs that have been happening. Also, from history, we should all know that that's yeah. mm-hmm. kind of still happening. It's so, still happening. whatever. Okay. They didn't treat these crimes seriously, and mm-hmm. it was very hard to know who to turn to, like who to trust, right. and who could actually stop the crimes, and who would actually investigate them. Right. So, Anna had no known enemies, and the case went unsolved. Hmm. By July 19th, no, by July 1921, mm-hmm. my brain just mm-hmm. died for a second. Okay. <laughs> the local authorities wrapped up the investigation, concluding that Anna was murdered by parties unknown. Oh, so good. Helpful. So that, that wraps it right up. We're not even going to investigate then, who these parties are. Okay. Yeah, then they just kind of like gave up. They're like, there. ooh, They're like, um, just... I'm going to guess that uh, she died. She's dead. That's my guess. And um, someone else probably murder? did it. I'm going to say it was murder? Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm assuming. But we don't know. But, you know, the end. we figured it out, so we should get paid. You're welcome. We're going to pat ourselves on the back and take a big pay raise for that. <laughs> so that may have been the end of it, but that same month, Anna's mother, Lizzie, suspiciously died. Uh-oh. She was one of the last of the Osage elders who still practiced many of the old traditions. She became mysteriously sick, and her body seemed to wither and become more insubstantial each day. <gasps> just like the, uh, just like her daughter, the withered. One. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No one could point pinpoint what was happening, and within two months she was dead. Poison. And evidence later surfaced that she had been poisoned. Aha! You're right. I'm a detective. So, within just two months. Molly Burkhart had lost her sister to a gunshot and her mother to poisoning. Oh, my God. Uh, one Someone night... is thinning her family out. Mm. Mm. One night in March 1923, there was a loud explosion in the community. It was about three in the morning, and Molly Burkhart heard it. She got up, and she went to her window. She looked down in the direction of where her sister Rita's house oh, had no. stood. Oh, no. And she could see a large orange fire rising into the sky. <gasps> what the fuck? And where her sister's house had been, there had been an explosion. <sighs> Somebody had planted a bomb under the house, killing everyone oh. in it, including Molly's sister, Rita, oh Rita's husband, and a white servant who lived in the house. What the fuck? There were 
other murders happening throughout the community, not just to this family, but with other Osage being targeted. Um, uh, you might probably don't know this answer, but I'm, I'm wondering if like, so if they're giving out the, the money to the tribe members, mm-hmm. if there's less of them, you would get more money, right? Oh, we'll get to <laughs> okay. it. Okay. All right. So you do know. All right. <laughs> Uh Uh-huh. This isn't unsolved. Fuck. Okay. So, two years later, it's going to get worse. Two years later, her cousin, Henry Roan, was found in a car shot in the back of the head. 29-year-old William Stepson, who had been a healthy and athletic man, fell ill and died within a matter of hours. Oh, my God. Although the local coroner did not have the equipment to perform a toxicology exam, poison was suspected. Mm Mm-hmm. The theory gained more credence after two more tribe members dropped dead in similarly sketchy circumstances over the next few months. Shit. One of the most prevalent means of murder and of killing the Osage was poison because of the lack of training. Even though scientists understood toxicologies for poison, the local police forces didn't. Mm -hmm. And so it was very easy to slip someone poison. There was one... There was one champion steer roper Osage who had, he got a call one night and he went out of his house. He came back and suddenly collapsed, frothing, and his whole body was shaking. Somebody had slipped him what was believed to be strychnine, which makes your whole body convulse until you slowly can't breathe, but you're still conscious throughout the whole time. Like the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, horrible way to die. Horrible. So one by one, at least two dozen people in the area inexplicably turned up dead. Oh, my God. Uh, We have a problem. I mean, not just Osage, but also a well-known oil man and others. But a slew... Okay, so this whole community is completely terrorized at this point. Yeah, right? like, you don't this know, is like, fucking nobody knows terrifying. who's doing it, and people are just winding up dead within hours of them being fine. Yeah. So a slew of private detectives and other investigators turned up nothing, and some were deliberately trying to turn up nothing. Of course. <laughs> Molly issued re- rewards, and she hired a team of private investigators. She, like, put her neck out there to, like, try and get to the bottom of this. She sounds badass. Uh, but... Private investigators were often sordid characters. Surprise, surprise. So, so Barney McBride was an oil man in the area, and he was a white man, but he was a friend of the Osage, and they trusted him. And so they asked him to go to Washington, D.C. to try and plead for help. Barney McBride went. He showed up in Washington, D.C., and he brought with him a Bible and a pistol. <laughs> that night, <laughs> the cowboy suitcase. Mm-hmm. That night, when he arrived at his boarding house, he received a telegram, and it said to be careful. Oh, no. Then, that evening, he walked out of the boarding house. He was abducted. <gasps> Somebody put a bag over his head. What? And the next morning, he was found in a, co- in a covert in Maryland. What? His head had been beaten in, and he had been stabbed 20 times. Okay, that's someone's someone's upset. <laughs> His body had been stripped naked, mm. and it was clearly a warning sign. Yeah. Newspapers described the murder as the most brutal in crime annals in the district. 
So McBride's killing was a clear message that white friends to the Osage were not safe either. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. This is real On cool. On to someone else. Great. Uh-huh. W.W. Vaughn was a local white attorney. He had 10 children, wow. and he was considered honorable and not corrupt. Okay. He began to try and see if he could catch the killers and stop them. So he went to Oklahoma City to meet with an Osage who was dying of suspected poisoning. Oh, before he went, he told his wife that he had put money in a safe for her in case anything happened to him. Mm. And he had also stored away the evidence he had been gathering because he was afraid for his life. Yeah. He went to Oklahoma City to meet with this Osage who was dying of suspected poisoning. Mm-hmm. And he spoke to them. He got documents from him. And then he called the local sheriff and said, I've got enough evidence against one of the killers. I'm coming back. I'll be on the train. But he never arrived. Yeah, you don't say that shit. No, you don't no, tell them. No, you tell them. them. You just go. You tell them. Go. Like, or you just like mail it or what? I don't know. You, you don't give them a, a heads up. That. No. So people began looking for him. Local Boy Scouts took up the search. Bloodhounds ran through the prairie. And his body was eventually found 24 hours later, lying along the tracks. Oh, he no. too had been stripped naked and had been thrown off the speeding train. And his shit. neck was broken. Shit. The next day, when his wife went to the safe where he had stored his materials, Uh-oh. everything had been cleaned what? up. What? So someone, how? It's not like there were phones and people were, like, bugging their houses. How are they knowing? What the hell? I think there were phones. Oh. I don't know about old But I don't think they were they bugging houses. Say. But, like, yeah, are they listening? I mean, I said they called a few times, so I think they yeah. called. <laughs> they didn't just, like, y- like, yell down the canyon, <laughs> like, hey. <laughs> Your cup and string. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> mm. So by now, this was known as the Osage Reign of Terror. Yeah, like there were everyone at is, least 20, no one's safe. Yeah, there were at least twenty-four Osage who had been murdered, as I said before. Several people who had tried to catch the killers themselves had also been killed. Fuck. And at this point, the Osage would hang lights around their houses so that at night their houses would be illuminated. Like, they were terrified. Yeah. Doors were locked. Children were not allowed to wander the streets. Many Osage moved to California. They were like, fuck this. Yeah, it's not safe. They were terrified. So the Osage issue a tribal resolution where they plead for federal investigators to come in. Those who will not be tainted or connected to the local power structure and eventually a very obscure branch of the justice department, which was then known as the Bureau of investigation, which would later be renamed the FBI took up the case. I'm like, uh, part of me is like, why would you even reach out to the American government when they've just fucked you over every time? And then like said that you can't, you're not allowed to deal with your own money because you don't know how like, why would well, you not clearly think they, they have corrupt? no other recourse. Like, what can they... They have no other... Yeah. ...where to turn. Yeah, I would just be very, Their very people suspicious. are dying. The people who they trusted, who are white people who they trusted, have been murdered. So clearly, like... I mean, I guess now that you have... Whoever these people are, they're just killing everyone. Well, unfortunately... I think, like, maybe now that there's, like, white people dead, then the, the U.S. government might take more interest in it being, like... Okay, like, it was one thing when you were killing these other people, but when you're killing us, which... Well, at this point, the FBI was very fledgling, so they needed, they needed, like, support, basically. Hmm. Uh, So they're like, we'll take the case because this, this is starting... 
Because it was starting to like get out that so many people were like dying, yeah. you know, and they're like, well, if we can get involved in like a really, you know, popular case or I don't know what the word is, then maybe we'll get some like accolades if we can solve it or whatever. Huh. Okay. So um, the same problems that infected local enforcement were still plaguing the bureau where you had criminals who were often investigators and it was being led by, um, what's the dude, the cross-dresser? What's his name? Oh, um, fucking the, the head of the FBI, Hoover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jagger Hoover. Okay, so he's like a criminal who's leading the FBI <laughs> and it's like stocked with criminals, but they don't have ties to this community. So. He's wearing a beautiful gown. So he looks, he looks good. fabulous. <laughs> Only in private, though. <laughs> so the Bureau had very limited jurisdiction over crimes back then. They could deal with escaped federal prisoners, uh, smutty books crossing state Ooh. lines, which is like, <laughs> why? Who cares? But they also had jurisdiction over American Indian reservations, which is why they got jurisdiction over this case mm. and why it became one of their first major homicide investigations. Okay. So, the fresh, inexperienced FBI and a bunch of, like, wild frontier men were, who were more experienced, mm-hmm. including a man named Tom White, they were getting together to kind of, like, you know, solve this thing. Hmm. So, the, the frontier lawmen were really struggling to adapt to the Bureau and it's, like, new scientific forms of detection, which were, like, fingerprinting and handwriting analysis. Which handwriting analysis, like, I don't know, but fingerprinting for mm-hmm. sure is legit. So yeah. they have – they all of a sudden have to, like, do paperwork and wear suits. Like, the people in the bureau <laughs> have to, like, wear suits and file paperwork and stuff, which they're like, what the fuck is this about? <laughs> Tom White was born a frontier – on the frontier in a log cabin in Texas. Mm-hmm. His father had been a frontier lawman and a local sheriff, and he watched his father when he was just a little kid hang a man oh, who was a convict. Oh, fun. So that's that's a good childhood memory. He, yeah. He grew up and became a lawman, and at a time when justice was often meted out by the barrel of a gun. So he was hardcore. Huh. He puts together an undercover team of, like, cowboys, mm-hmm. and <laughs> they were all frontier cowboys. lawmen. Yeah. Well, they're all lawmen, but yeah, Mm -hmm. cowboys. So he realized that given the danger and the fear in the area and the corruption, that the team would have to go undercover. Yeah. You cannot. Don't say anything to anyone. Just collect the evidence, find out who it is, and then capture them. So he recruited a frontier lawman who would pose as a cattleman. And he recruited a man who once sold insurance and as someone who will sell insurance Mm -hmm. and his fake identity when he's in Osage County. And perhaps most interestingly, he recruited an indigenous American agent. What? But but he Which, do, but he doesn't how know how to deal with there? his money. How can he be an agent? What? <laughs> this makes no sense. So, yeah, crazy. <laughs> crazy. What a crazy idea. So Tom methodically ruled out as many of the suspects as possible – uh, including Anna Brown's ex-husband. He would, like, corroborate their alibis mm-hmm. and did, like, detective work. So one witness, a young Ka Indian woman, claimed that another woman named Rose Osage had told her that she'd murdered Anna Brown as revenge for attempting sedu- sed- to seduce her boyfriend, a man named Joe Allen. Mm. 
According to the Ka Indian woman's signed statement, Rose and Joe had shot Anna in the back of the head and then dragged the body to the ravine where it was discovered. Hmm. But that, no, like... No, 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 that. So Ernest Burkhart, the husband uh-huh. of Molly, he finally gave some key information about the murder of Anna Brown. Hmm. He said that there was a mysterious third man spotted with Anna and his brother, hmm. Byron, on the night that, Al- that Anna was seen alive and this man was Kelsey Morrison. He was a man who was later engaged by the Bureau to work as an undercover operative. Uh Ernest said that Morrison was in fact the man who had put the bullet in Anna Brown. Why does Ernest know this? Ernest. Well, and now the pieces are falling together. So, on the night of May 21st, 1921, Byron Burkhart and Anna Brown are joined by Kelsey Morrison, mm-hmm. who's an acquaintance of Burkhart's, and Morrison's wife, Catherine Cole Morrison, who is a full-blooded Osage. Okay. Burkhart's Buick arrives at the location near the Gray Horse Cemetery, then turns north and west onto a remote road. In the full moonlight, Catherine Morrison sees a gate in a fenced-off pasture. Wait a second. So, Burkhart, so they're like leaving. They left the luncheon, and then they pick up these two people, and they're like, "Let's go to a cemetery." They're going for a drive. Uh-uh, it's never a good idea to go for a drive. Burkhart drives through the gate and heads down a hill toward a wooded area. Anna is drunk, mm-hmm. um, and she's barely coherent when the Buick comes to a stop near a tree about 100 feet from a ravine. Just after we stopped, Byron and Kelsey got out of the car and helped Anna Brown out of the car, Catherine Morrison recalled later in a statement to the FBI. Anna Brown was very drunk, and Byron took her on the right side and Kelsey on the left and walked her off from the car, going in the direction of the ravine. As they started away, I started to say something to Kelsey. He turned around and swore and continued on. I realized that they were going to do something to Anna Brown, and it scared me very much. Yeah. I was afraid to say anything to Kelsey for fear that he would do something to me. What they began to discover is... So the FBI started to realize that there was this huge criminal enterprise to swindle Osage money, and that the system of guardians were lawmen, prosecutors, businessmen, bankers who were systematically stealing and skimming from the Osage money. Surprise, surprise. Many of the crimes were committed by the victim's loved ones, especially amongst those in intermarriages. God damn it. This is why money sucks. Corrupts everyone. They also began to realize that there was a complicity of silence. There were many who were silent, including law enforcement reporters and members of the community who allowed the murders to prevail. Yeah, they were like, oh, a dead body. Well... Must have been killed. Case closed. What? Well, and then it became very apparent that they were moving into a realm in which they had, that in which it was very hard for them to know who they could trust, and that the very power structure within the community is more than likely complicit within these crimes. Yeah, totally. So another of the murderers str- shrugged off his actions by offering the explanation. White people in Oklahoma thought no more of killing an Indian than they did in 1724. I mean, I, that's probably true, which is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Early on, all fingers pointed to William Hale. 
Remember the king of the Osage Hills? <laughs> this jackass? Hale had bribed, intimidated, lied, and stolen his way to wealth and power. Huh. He reportedly Sounds was like uneducated. Uneducated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sound, check, check. But was able to amass a fortune, mostly from insurance fraud mm-hmm. and his unscrupulous dealings with the Osage people. Yeah. Interesting. Not. Eventually, he became a millionaire who dominated local politics and seemingly could not be punished for any of the many crimes which were laid at his door. Yeah, you don't have to be punished for crimes when you have money. Uh-huh. Tom White, who was the special agent in charge, mm-hmm. he wrote in 1932 a memo to J. Edgar Hoover. I put his name in here eventually. <laughs> he said about um, Hale. His methods of building up power and prestige was to put various individuals under obligation to him by means of gifts and favors shown to them. Mm. Consequently, he had a tremendous following in the vicinity composed not only of the riffraff element, which had drifted in, but of many good and substantial citizens. Ugh. The riffraff and good... Ugh, God. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're we're not all humans. That's fine. In addition... In addition to a ranch near Greyhorse, Hale, who proclaimed himself, okay, he um, had a controlling interest in a bank in Fairfax and was part owner of a store there. Mm-hmm. He eventually garnered favor with most of Osage's county, oh, m- most of Osage County's law enforcement, mayors, lawyers, and even judges. Mm. So, despite his numerous assets, he coveted the Kyle family money. So, they're all. They're all part of the Kyle family. Mm-hmm. That's like there. Uh, and persuaded his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, to marry one of Lizzie's mm-hmm. children. Ernest Burkhart married Molly. See, I knew he Hale. was a bad thing. I said it from the beginning. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Don't trust these people. But then you got me to trust him. Telling me he learned so. her language and all this bullshit. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So Hale and Burkhart now had power over Molly's headright and part of Lizzie's four headrights upon her death. Shit. But for Hale, there was no reason to stop there. In Hale's scheme, Anna Brown's headright was easily easily obtained by because she was divorced and had no children. Mm-hmm. So her headright would be left to, to no one, oh, basically. Okay. So if she died before her mother, her headright would go to Lizzie by law, okay. whose estate would then be inherited by the remaining sisters, mm-hmm. which were Molly and Rita. Right. Hale provided Morrison and Byron Burkhart a thirty-two automatic pistol, according to an FBI report. The plan was to get Anna drunk. And with Catherine Morrison along, appear that they were out for a night of drinking. They would then drive to a ravine and leave Anna there with a bottle of whiskey, take Catherine back to her home, and return to the ravine to kill Anna. Matt, Matt Williams, a local bootlegger, told U.S. Attorney T.J. Leahy, mm-hmm. oh, Mr. Leahy, <laughs> In 1926, that Byron Burkhart had bought the liquor for Anna for $15. He told me at the time that he was going to meet Kelsey Morrison at the end of the bridge. I said, what you going to do, Byron? He said, I'm going to do some work for Uncle Billy tonight. Oh, God. 
Who was Uncle Billy, Lee, he asked. Hale, William answered. He, Burkhart, said he had made arrangements with Shorty Wheeler, <coughs> a.k.a. Fred Wheeler, to bring them some more whiskey at the Salt Creek Bridge about 9 or 10 o'clock. I let Wheeler have my car, a Maxwell Roadster. He got there just as, as they was killing Anna Brown. Oh, God. He heard her scream. This is all a quote. He heard her scream. Byron Burkhart was holding her in his arms. Kelsey Morrison was beating her over the head with a six-shooter from behind. What? They carried her to the bank of the Why did they the not creek. shoot her? What? She, sh- she still showed life, oh, and they shot her in the back of the head. Wow. After that, Kelsey Morrison come to my place, and he told me, Matt, that was the most brutal deal I ever pulled off. <laughs> wow. Hale paid Kelsey Morrison $1,000, forgave a $600 debt, and bought him an automobile, according to Morrison's testimony in federal court. So that's all. That's all it costs to brutally beat and murder a woman. I just don't understand. I mean, I'm not advocating for murdering anyone, but why are you, why do you have a gun if you're just going to, like, bash her brains in with the gun? Why don't you just shoot yeah. her and get it over with? Like, why you got to make it I don't know. Worse I don't know, because they're sick in the head. They're, like, f- fucked up oh, human that's true. beings. So, now for the last head right, which is Rita's. Mm. Rita's has been launched an outside investigation, hiring a detective firm from Tulsa, and apparently finding sufficient evidence to accuse Hale of Anna Brown's murder. Mm. Smith began to state openly that Hale had Anna Brown murdered and that he would not hesitate to kill the last of Lizzie's children. He seems like a decent dude. Mm-hmm. So far, but I don't know anyone here like, no, it seemed decent. And then it's like, oh, I would just like what? bash someone's brains in. Well, no, but he like actually looked okay. into it and investigated yeah. it and found like connections with Hale and was like telling everyone. Good. Okay. So by 1923, Smith and Hale were open enemies. Not only had Smith accused Hale in public of perpetrating the murder of Anna Brown, he also claimed that he had loaned Hale $6,000, which Hale refused to pay. Hale told his friends that to silence Bill Smith and gain control over the head right of his wife, Rita, he intended to kill both of them. (laughs) Yeah, well, not surprising. Which witnesses, including Matt Williams, later testified. So, Bill Smith... So, Williams said... Bill Smith come to my home at at Ralston and said, if Hale don't settle up with me, I'm going to inform on him for the murder of Anna Brown. I told Smith at the time, Bill, you are taking a long shot because Hale has already asked me about this thing and you better move off that creek over there because he will get you there, sure. (laughs) Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Well, not surprising. He's threatening everyone. So now after that, Leahy asked, now after that, did you tell Hale that what Smith said about informing on him with reference to Anna Brown killing? I told Bill Hale, I said, Bill Smith's been over here and made that assertion. And I said, Bill, he is going to inform on you. He said, I'll put him away because I, it ought to have been done years ago. He asked me at that time of some man that would put Bill Smith away. Hmm. So, Hale eventually found a local thug named Asa Kirby? Asa. A-S-A. Asa. Asa Asa Kirby. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
who agreed to kill the Smiths. On the night of March 10th, 1923, he is an ASA. Kirby placed a five gallon keg of nitroglycerin. Like, where do you get that even? Probably at the general yeah, store like, where they're oh, doing the embalming, yep. or not embalming. We're getting embalming and uh, some nitroglycerin and some pancake mix. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> okay. So they put a five, he put a five gallon keg of nitroglycerin beneath the Smith's home in Fairfax. Oof. When the keg exploded, it shook the entire town. Oh, my God. I was in bed with my wife when it first happened. It shook everything. At first, I thought it was thunder. Then there were three or four shots fired. I saw a light on the north side. I knew what it was, Ernest Burkhart said in a statement to the FBI. Fuck. Rita Smith and her housekeeper, Nettie Brookshire, were killed instantly. Bill Smith was thrown a distance from the house, sustaining injuries that left him badly mangled. Oh my god, but alive? Bill Smith Bill Smith lived three or four days, oh, dying it. on March 14th, Shit. 1923. Which fucked up Hale's plan. Mm. Because Rita died before him. Mm-hmm. Her head right went to him, and subsequently to his daughter from a previous marriage. Ooh, as well as to Rita's cousin, Grace Bigheart. Molly Burkhart received just five dollars from the estate. Okay, so if he had, so he so murdered he had died, three people for nothing. So if, if Bill had died in the explosion, then the money would have gone to Molly. Molly. So then he could have, yeah, slowly in- eliminated each person, and then and then he could have killed Molly and had all the head rights. Oh my god! Okay, through Ernest. But he just murdered three innocent people. Oh, for it's no fine. <laughs> After three years of investigation, only five slayings were brought to trial. The murder of Anna Brown, the murders of W.E. Smith, Rita Smith, and Nettie Brookshire, and the murder of Anna Brown's cousin, Henry Roan, who was found shot through the head in his car in 1923. But there was a belief that white men Mm -hmm. would not be convicted for these crimes and that white jurors would not find them guilty. Shocking. And the challenges that Tom White and his men faced were enormous. There was huge corruption Mm -hmm. throughout the entire town, or the entire reservation. And the people who were being charged had enough power to buy jurors and witnesses and to murder witnesses and to make witnesses disappear. Mm -hmm. So the case shifted from a question of who did it to can you actually convict them. But finally, Ernest talked. Then others started to confess. The agents were able to prove that Hale ordered the murders of Anna and her family to inherit their oil rights, cousin Roan for the insurance, and others who had threatened to expose him. Byron Burkhart and Kelsey Morrison were arrested in April of 1926 for the murder of Anna Brown. Morrison, who was serving time on another charge, testified in court to his part in Brown's murder. He received a life sentence at McAllister and was paroled in 1931. Oh, my God. Of course. For good so behavior. He was arrested in 1926 and paroled in 1931. So he's arrested in 1926. So he's probably not even like charged until like later or like. Well, I think it's pretty swift oh, okay. back in the day. Jeez. But still. That's still disgusting. Uh, but in 1937, he was killed in a gun battle with police at Fairfax. Oh, good. So he was just well, that's, that's scummy nice. dude anyway. Byron Burkhart turned state's evidence in the Brown murder and was never what? convicted. What? 
within you bashed of a murder, woman's head in he... with a gun instead of just shooting her. I mean, like once again, uh-huh. not saying that either is fine, but like if you're mm-hmm. gonna do it, do it fast. Don't be a fucking asshole. Well, apparently you can murder someone and just get well, away with yeah, it. Because then within a, months a of the murder, dude, again, yeah. He married an Osage woman named Rose. How is there not, like, signs around the Osage community of, like, do not fuck with these people? He died in 1985. Of a horrible death? Fingers crossed? How are there not... If you murder someone, you should have to, like, wear a sign around your neck that says, like, I murdered this person. Yeah. Or if you're, like... If you, like, are... a domestic abuser, you should have to, like, wear a sign. If you're a star... Like, you should have to, like wear a sign or something to like let people know you're a threat to other human beings in any way you should have to be wearing a sign i agree mm-hmm. uh Catherine cole morrison divorced kelsey morrison shortly after the murder of anna <laughs> and it was later revealed that hale had paid a local man dewey self to help kill Catherine. <gasps> But self testified that he lost his nerve and she lived to testify in the case wow Oh, my God. Uh, Asa Kirby, whom Hale hired to blow up the Smith home, was shot and killed a month after the murders while trying to rob a store uh, in southwest, no, in in Cataly, which is southwest of Benita. Uh Uh-huh. I like how you're saying that like you know where that is. (laughs) (laughs) I was saying like you know where it is. (laughs) Shit. It was reported that Hale... Had told the store owner when Kirby would be arriving to rob him. So. Wow. Hale kind of orchestrated that murder, too. He's fucking evil. In early, you should look up a picture of this dude sucks. In early (laughs) June 1926, he slipped a note from jail. Oh, sorry. Um. Ernest, in June of 1926, slipped a note from jail to the Bureau of Investigation agents indicating that he wanted to confess to helping Hale in his plot to murder the Kyle families and others. His confession led to a conviction Ew. later that month. Ew, he's Ew. gross. He looks like Ew. a classic Ew. Western villain. Yes. Right? Like, I imagine he talks he's like, gross. Hmm, yes, we're going to murder him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, we're going to take them out. Yes, see. Oh, he's, he's gross looking. <laughs> Ew. So Ernest. Ew, I hate his stupid face. I know. Ernest was sentenced to life in prison at the state penitentiary in McAllister for his part in the murders of W.E. and Rita Smith and their housekeeper. He was paroled in 1937 and given a full <gasps> pardon what? by Governor Henry Belmont in 1965. Why? I don't know. What the fuck? This may have been. Oh, this may have been Byron. I don't know if it was Byron or Ernest. Anyway, whoever it was was burdened by, burdened was pardoned by the governor. So that's great. That's lovely. Molly, the sole remaining member of the Kyle family, recovered from being poisoned. Wow, she is a badass. She, <laughs> she divorced Ernest, obviously. Yeah, I that piece and of shit out. She died in June of nineteen thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. Her children with Ernest inherited what remained of the Kyle family fortune. Holy shit, what? This poor woman had to suffer through the death of her whole family. The murderer 
murders of her whole family. And not only that, but knowing By her yes, husband was her like her husband involved. and his family were taking them out one at a yeah. time. And she's probably like, mm-hmm. you know, confiding in him how she feels and all the different things that are happening. And he's probably yeah. pretending to care for her and comfort her. Ugh, gross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gross. In the end, Hale was never tried for the murders of the Kyle family. Instead, it was the murder of their cousin, Roan, for a $25,000 life insurance policy that led to his undoing. Mm. This dude's just, like, greedy as fuck. Yeah. So state and federal authorities knew Hale's resources and control over the locals would make convicting him in district court in Pawhuska difficult (sighs) at best. So, since Roan was killed on tribal land, that crime fell under federal jurisdiction. So, it was decided that the government would take over prosecution of Hale in federal court, effectively removing him from his ring of influence. After four trials... Oh, my God. From 1926 to 1929, Hale and his accomplice in the Roan murder... John Ramsey each received a life sentence for the murder of Roan to be served at the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth. Hale claimed his innocence throughout. Ugh, gross. Although he was paroled. No, what? In 1947. He got a life sentence and he's paroled? Where he then moved to Montana and worked as a cowboy and dishwasher and eventually migrated to Arizona, where he died in 1962 at the age of 87. I'm sorry, what? He was a dish dishwasher? And a cowboy. Ha- he is buried in Wichita, Kansas. If you can go find his fucking shit, fuck and it up. And go whiz-bang on it. <laughs> That's what I would do. Maybe just the whiz. <laughs> I don't know. I was up to you. Yep. <laughs> Ramsey was paroled also in 1947. Oh, jeez. Disgusting. So... Many Osage who died during the 1920s died of strange causes, such as the wasting illness that seemed to affect so many of the tribe's citizens and car wrecks that many believed were engineered by assassins. Yeah, I'd believe that. Most of those mysterious deaths were never investigated, leaving generations of Osage to wonder what happened to their relatives and whether they would ever be truly safe themselves. Disgusting. For every one case that was investigated by the FBI, there were probably a hundred that weren't investigated by the FBI. Those stories are ones that are not told in books and certainly not from the Osage's point of view. Further, not every family receives justice in the investigation, but each one certainly did get a bill (sighs) for the FBI's troubles. Oh my God, I bet. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Any way to just... Yeah. So, so much of the Osage wealth was stolen. It's hard to put a number on it, but hundreds of millions of dollars were swindled. Mm -hmm. And then the Great Depression came and a good deal of that money was lost. And gradually, a lot of the oil was depleted. And so while some of the Osage still receive royalties from oil money, it's nothing like the fortune they once had during the 20s. They managed to retain only a fourth of their... 2,229 original head rights issued to the tribe in 1906. To prevent another reign of terror, Congress passed a law in 1925 that prohibited non-Osage from inheriting the head rights of tribal members possessing more than one half Osage blood. As for the Osage wealth, although significantly diminished, the U.S. government holds much of it in a trust. 
In 2000, the tribe filed a lawsuit against the government alleging historical losses to its trust funds and interest income as a result of government's mismanagement of the tribe's assets. Oh, but you know, they don't know how to manage their own assets. The the American government is doing better than they would have done for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that what, yeah? They're like, to prevent this from happening again, we'll yeah. hold your oh, money yeah. uh-huh. in a trust Don't worry. for you. Oh, but we're mismanaging it and stealing it, mm, too. Surprise, surprise. So in 2000 is when they filed the mm-hmm. lawsuit. In 2011 oh is when they reached a settlement. A federal judge ruled that the tribe was owed $330 million for mismanagement of its trust assets and trust Good. funds. The settlement with the Obama administration will put $345.8 million into the Osage Trust to be distributed to each headright holder. The but remainder this is still the, the trust that the American 30... government is holding on to? Yeah. Okay, They're great. distributing uh-huh. it. Yeah, we're going to quote unquote put money in your account. Don't worry, we'll make sure that you get it. Okay, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and... $34.2 million of that settlement goes to the attorneys. <laughs> what? So, while not perfect, the proposed settlement represents an end to over a decade of hard-fought litigation and a new beginning for improved management of the Osage Mineral Estate and Osage Trust Fund, Dudley Whitehorn, the chairman of the Osage Trust team, said in a press release. Upon execution of the settlement, our Osage head right holders, including our elders, who have waited too long for the settlement, will receive their settlement payment before Christmas. So the Osage Trust has 2,229 head rights. So each head right will, re- will receive $155,136 under the settlement. Which is Fuck, not enough. That's nothing. Yeah. What? Some, uh, but the, but this, the attorneys get millions of dollars, which again, some are, oh my God. Okay. Yep. Tribal white, members. White attorneys getting more money. Uh huh. Yep. Uh huh. This is never ending. Some tribal members own full or multiple head rights, while others own fractionated interests. However, about 30% of head rights were willed or transferred to non Indian entities. So they will benefit from the settlement. No. Unacceptable. About so nothing has 30%. changed. Literally nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Great. The end. Wow. Fuck the U.S. government. Like with a rusty barbed wired pole. And so if that wasn't like a, a terrorist act all in itself. Yep. Perpetrated by white people who sucked. Yep. Like what are we doing here? That and was like. And that Killing. was in 2011? Like, what? Well, that, yeah. But then, like, the murder, like, everything. Well, it's yeah, just, like, everything. Continued. But I'm just, it's like, just continual. It, nothing is better. They're, they no. don't get to take care of their own trust. They don't get the money themselves. They can't manage their own money still. They had to fight for 11 years to get anything after the government basically gave all their money away. I hate this country. Me too. Wow. Disgusting, disgusting people. But that seems like a super important story to tell. Well, they're and not going to tell so that I, in in American history in schools. That puts us in a bad light. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, I should have written the title of the book and the author, but one of the reasons I didn't was because that last, one of the last things that was written about it was like, yeah, this book came out 
but it was written by a non-indigenous mm-hmm. person who didn't go through it. Mm. And what's really important is to get the Osage people to like write about their own story. Right. So it doesn't get like changed. Whitewashed. Right? So it's like real. Right. So it's like real. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's great that more people are learning about this story. But, but what needs to happen is that these people need to like, need to be the ones who like share this story. Right. Cause because it's, it's their history and it's their family members. I'm sure they know way more about what actually happened than what our government is portraying. Or not, happened. because no one looked into it, because no one like cared about them. Or at least the emotional so aspect the, like, of it and knowing that they've been fucked over that time and time again. That their parents and grandparents and great grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins just started disappearing and like were murdered by who knows, you know, like yeah. by greedy white men. Not surprising. And they got away with it, too. Not surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few years in prison. Which I'm sure that they were put in, like, uh, you know, a nicer part. Like, I'm sure they weren't in, like, general population if they were knows. They wealthy. should have been. Themselves. Gross. Yep. Ugh. The toss salad and the scrambled egg. The toss salad a scrambled egg the toss salad the toss salad and the scrambled egg a scrambled egg so a toss salad is someone who clearly knows right from wrong and chooses to be wrong anyway right so the toss salad has more components the person is able to com- compartmentalize and a scrambled egg is someone who can't tell right from wrong and they're just completely scrambled just one component one track mind they're all kinds of mixed up there's no focus they're disorganized so all those people i think were uh tossed fucking salads yeah yeah, I mean, they all knew what they, they were knew doing, what they were and, doing. They were and it was super all about calculated, all cool. about money, just deliberately murdering, basically yeah. creating a genocide so that they can get their money because they put them on the land that they were supposed to not get anything from the land, and then they got mm-hmm. something from the land. And they're like, wait a second, where's our cut? I know, and then the thing, the thing is like. For that one dude who was already like a millionaire mm-hmm. and like swindling people and insurance fraud and all that, like it's that wasn't enough. enough for him. It's never enough. So he convinces his nephew to marry a woman, but then that's not enough. So he has to kill her whole family. Yep. Ugh. Ugh. And that guy is disgusting looking. He literally Ew. looks like he looks like a cartoon he does. villain. He does with his round little spectacles yes. and his stupid yes. little disgusting face. He's gross. Ugh. So gross. I want to punch him in the face so much. But think about how many other stories like this one, you know? That's true. Where maybe they didn't they didn't get moved on to like oil yeah. land, but they were like starved. Like the original plan was to like starve them to death. They like, didn't starve, they got money. Damn it. What fucking assholes. Fuck no. I know. No, that's very true though. There are so many different tribes and communities that were pushed onto barren wastelands of nothingness and then i mean plenty were obliterated just like genocide i mean even to this even to this day reservations are being mistreated yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's disgusting their shit's still being taken away their treaties still mean nothing Mm -hmm. their cemeteries are still being dug up to put like a 
freeway ramps and shit. Yeah. Like, yeah, their water's being taken. Their yeah. Everything is being taken because we can't just let them be. And this, like... Oh, no. It's disgusting. And they know how to take care of this land better than anyone. Like, they know how to take care mm-hmm. of this land. Whatever. I hate it. I hate that you told me that. I hate it all. <laughs> it's all greed. It's, like, all greed. It's all greed, yeah. Our, that's what our country is founded on, is greed. Here's the thing. Greed is destroying the earth. Once the earth is destroyed, mm-hmm. you don't get to have money. No. Like, you don't. Money that's is it. a made-up thing. It. It's a made-up human construct. Yeah, it means it absolutely nothing. It is. And what means something is the people in your life and the nature and being part of it all. Yes. Enjoying every moment. Not trying to fuck each other over so that you can get as Mm -hmm. much money as you can. Ew. To what end? Ew. Yeah. Disgusting. So gross. Okay. So I hate the story that you told me, but I think it's important that everyone knows about it. I'm just like... I mean, I know why, but I just feel like, why don't we know? You know? I mean, I know. It just makes me feel so, so dirty. So dirty. We should know. Look, we're like fresh over here. So like, we didn't do anything. (laughs) We're fresh. We are. (laughs) It all sucks. It just all sucks. It all sucks. And I'm going to tell you a story that sucks, but I think... Not to say that it's a lighter tale. <laughs> yeah, don't <laughs> but make it's any not claims. Like sy- it's not systemic oppression yeah. and murder of a certain race of people. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> so I got this information from a website called Plead the Belly. Oh. Um, which is like just a woman who writes. It's like a blog or whatever she writes uh-huh. about true crime and stuff. Um, deranged LA crimes, uh, LA Times blogs, oh. New York Daily News, and Vice. This is entitled The Trick or Treat Murder. Oh no! Happy Halloween! <laughs> so fitting! <laughs> oh no! Well, I felt like you did kind of a Halloween esque Yeah, let's last try week, and so. do like Halloween ish one. Like one of us does a Halloween one. Yeah. Maybe. So I, we're off to oh, a good that's start. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. We can plan ahead. We're good. <laughs> plan ahead. <laughs> okay. Okay. It was, it was the 1950s. Mm. Okay. And Peter okay, and Betty imagining fa- fa- those oh. Halloween costumes in the 1950s is terrifying already. Creepy, so. disgusting. Good to go. Even when they're like, even when they're supposed to be like cute like characters or something, <laughs> You're like, what disgusting, the fuck is that? terrifying, <laughs> terrifying. A mouse from hell. <laughs> so Peter and Betty Fabiano moved to Sun Valley, California, which is just outside of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and they opened a hair salon. Nice. Um. It was kind of a little hard to get information on their pre, you know, their lives before all this, but it seemed that Betty had two children from a previous partner, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was a previous marriage or what, but during this time in the 1950s, they, the the two kids were like teens, like one of the there was a girl and a boy, and it said that the girl lived at home, and then the boy was he had joined the military, so he had to have been 18, right? Right. But the thing is, during this time, it also said that Betty was about 36. So I don't know how that works. They, they, they must have gotten the ages wrong because that would put her at like no, that really could be, young yeah, to have children. 18. 18. 
if he's 18, I mean, she would have been 18. And it's the 50s, so she probably like got 50s. married like right at, out of high school or act, like, oops, pregnant, now okay. we gotta get married. Well, well, anyway, I mean, the children don't really come up at all, but uh, okay. I... So we're just judging this woman I, for having an early... <laughs> so we're just gonna judge her. <laughs> Look, I'm really bad at math, and I was like, she's got to be, like, 14 to have this kid, so I don't know, okay? I'm just, let's just say that's not my strong suit. Anyway. Well, thanks for being honest about it. So, (laughs) Peter was a former United States Marine, and before they moved to Sun Valley, he worked as a truck driver, Mm. and him and Betty met in in the 1940s and um, ended up getting married. When she was 12. When she was 12, uh, they, they lived in New York for a while. I don't know if they were from New York, but it said that that's where he drove trucks and they lived until they moved to Sun Valley, California to open their hair salons, okay. which was apparently his idea. Hmm. He was, like I said, I couldn't get much background on him, but... Speaking of it hair... Like, speaking of hair, do you want to look like you've just come from a salon? From a 1950s hair salon? Like, luscious <laughs> hair? I don't know what they're do doing Do you then. want a bouffant? Is that a thing? But I think so. A beehive, perhaps? You want a beehive? Speaking of beehive... <laughs> We just try out Humblebee Herbals shampoo soap. Shampoo bar. Uh, shampoo bar. Super They're portable. Awesome. No more plastic containers. Stop buying plastic, everyone. It sucks. It's killing everyone and the animals and the ocean. So knock it off. They smell. They smell great. They leave your hair feeling moisturized and refreshed. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Check it out. Humblebeeherbal.com. So anyway, um, one article said that he like he was Betty's personal hair stylist too, oh, so she always looked like very so good. I think they say quaffed. Oh. Not sure if that's a thing. But um <laughs> that was the only mention that he actually was like a hairstylist. It seemed more like he owned the business, okay. the, the salon. Okay. Um I mean but, he you know, have must have liked to dabble he, in hair. Sure. I mean he found his passion through doing her hair and yeah. was like, let's give everyone good hair. Y- yeah. Yeah. So I'm in 1956, <laughs> in 1956, the hair salon was doing so well, they were able to open a second location. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone loved Peter. They said that he was really, really a good guy. He was a great boss. He was always in a good mood, willing to help anyone. His hair you was know, just amazing. Like, his hair was to die for. Mm. It also said that he was a, a great stepdad to the, mm-hmm. the kids. Like he was really excited that. The, that his stepson had decided to join the military right. and fall, you know, kind of follow in his footsteps, and he I felt like, like they bonded go really downhill. well. Okay, yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, what podcast are we on? Of course, it's going to go downhill. <laughs> Is he not um, really a great guy? No, he's as from okay. all accounts, he's a great uh-huh. guy. Okay, Com- completely lovable. So good. No one had a bad word to say about him. Okay. Well, one day they hired a or um. Not they, but uh, Peter, he hired a lady named Joan Raybel. Mm. It's either Raybel or Ra- Ra- Rabel. 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 R A B E L. R A B E L. Rabel. R A B E L. Rabel. Rabel, Rabel, Rabel. If it was. <laughs> right. Something like that. 
when she was hired, she was a 40-year-old freelance photographer with a background in writing. So I'm not really sure what she and did to the salon. And hair? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I mean, maybe she just did more managerial. I'm not sure. Like advertising? Didn't really go into details. I, I, it didn't say okay. anything that she did anything So it's like, special. even if you don't have the qualifications, just go for your dream job. Go for it. Yeah, I don't know. She she got hired, and occasionally Betty would work at the shops, probably doing, like, again, managerial work. Like, she mm-hmm. would just come through, do some stuff. You know, she wasn't yeah, there every day, but she, but she would come through and help yeah. out with stuff. And so Peter introduced Betty to Joan because he was like, oh, you guys probably get along. <laughs> and the two became friends. You're both women. You're both dames. <laughs> you, a lot, you work in hair. You're both older women. It's like... <laughs> Yeah. About the same age. <laughs> so around the same time, Betty and Peter were having some relationship problems. They're kind of Uh-oh. in a little bit of a pickle, but they decided that they were going to do a trial separation and just get their mm-hmm. distance and kind of, you know, see how, see how it feels and, and yeah, just get some distance and try and work on things. Um, yeah. So Betty moved in with Joan during this time. Oh, okay. And then after a couple months of this, Peter and Betty decided they were going to give their marriage another shot, so Betty moved back home. So, okay, Okay. so far so good. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, something must have been going on between Betty and Joan. Mm Mm-hmm. Because um, in order for the marriage to work, Peter was like, Okay, you're not allowed to talk to Joan anymore, Uh-oh. have any kind of communication with Joan. In fact, you're not allowed to speak her name in my presence. <gasps> Uh-oh. You think she just, like, goes on and on about Joan too much? She's like, I don't care about that bitch. Well, I mean, remember that this is the 1950s, and in, yeah, Cal- no, I'm thinking it's- in California, it is illegal to be gay or engage mm-hmm. in homosexual activities such as frolicking <gasps> and being fabulous <laughs> illegal so scandalous so uh all the original sources kind of skirted around the issue like saying that their friendship was quote-unquote abnormal so yeah that's cool <laughs> right okay mm. <laughs> it's definitely abnormal, abnormal to be gay let's be real i mean okay. icky Yuck. <laughs> so, oh, no. fast forward to Halloween night, 1957. Peter mm-hmm. and Betty are at home in bed after a long night of trick-or-treaters. It was around 11 p.m. and their doorbell <laughs> no, I guess they rings. they have trick-or-treating. I was like, wow, they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> no. They were Sorry. not trick-or-treating. They were oh. passing out candy and being, mm-hmm. you know, regular, non-abnormal folk. That's right. <laughs> A.K.A. normal. Yeah, normal, okay? So, Non-abnormal. Non-abnormal. <laughs> oh, God. All right, so it's around mm-hmm. 11 p.m. Their doorbell rings. Mm-hmm. Thinking it's a late-night trick-or-treater, Peter gets out of bed. Super late-night. Yeah, uh, he goes downstairs, he grabs the bowl of candy, he opens the door, oh. and he says, it's a little late for this, isn't it? And then a shot yeah. rang out. <gasps> Peter fell onto the porch as the shooter ran off. I just I just feel like when you're in bed already, you like turn off your porch light, right? You like yep. 
you're not going to go get candy for kids. <laughs> when he was being like a nice guy and was like exactly. trying to give him candy yep. and he gets shot. Yep. Mm. Hearing this, Betty and her daughter wake up and they run downstairs to help Peter. Betty ran next door and started banging on the door of her neighbor, Bud Alper, to help because he was an LAPD officer at the time. So she knew like he could get help fast. And he, Mm -hmm. within minutes, got an ambulance out there. They got Peter to Sun Valley Receiving Hospital. But unfortunately, he had lost too much blood and he died. Oh, no. She told, uh, Betty told the police what she had heard that night. She said that she heard two voices that she didn't recognize. She said that one sounded masculine and the other sounded like a man impersonating a woman. Hmm. Then, mm-hmm. then Betty heard a noise that sounded like a pop. Mm. So, of course, police immediately start questioning friends and family, trying to get any kind of information that they could. See if Peter right. had any enemies. You know, who would want to do this? And like I said before, everyone loved him. Everyone that they talked to just said that he was the greatest guy. Yeah. You know, no... Everyone but someone. Well, if you're referring to Joan, when they talked to her, Uh she said he was a great guy and that actually the three of them were best friends. Oh, of course Mm -hmm. they were, Mm -hmm. Joan. So the police are just hearing person after person saying that he had no enemies. Everyone loved him. He was a great guy. Literally everyone at at his work, all of his friends, his family loved him. Yes. Uh, a 15-year-old that lived on the same street came forward and said that he had seen a car speed away the night that that happened, but he didn't have wow. any information, like no make and model of the car, nothing other than know. he just saw a car speeding off. Mm. So police had little to go off of and really no physical evidence other than the bullet that they had gotten from peter's body but there were no shell casings no tire marks they knew that it wasn't a robbery because nothing was stolen so they were thinking maybe it kind of resembled a gangland hit so police yeah that was a hit for sure right so police started digging into his background to see if he was involved in anything yeah he had a minor record for bookmaking in 1948 but that was, like, in New York. For what? Bookmaking. What do you mean? Like, not, like, <laughs> stitching books up together. Like, you know, tam- <laughs> like, I think that's when you're um, doing, like, accounting for a business and then, like, lying about it. You oh, know? okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, like, nothing. You put these books together incorrectly. He just, you know, he. The pages are all jumbled. <laughs> Yeah, he, he couldn't follow page numbers, so he was yeah. suspicious. Arrested, anyway. obviously. But they couldn't find any connection to him, like, in with the L.A. underground. And that, yeah. and that was in 48, so, like, nothing recently. Everything was clean. Yeah. A week later, a confidential tip led, the, mm. led detectives to a bizarre murder plot. I mean, it's not really bizarre, because you can guess what it is, but... The tip, <laughs> the tip told police. Bizarre to them, I'm sure. <laughs> Very, yes. The, the tip told police to go to a certain department store and look inside a specific storage locker. Because apparently during that right. time, department stores, you could like rent storage lockers and keep your shit in. I don't know. Strange. But Strange. Okay. But they were like, okay, well, we've got nothing else to go off of. So let's check it out. 
They went to this locker and they opened it up and inside was a gun. And not just any gun, but the gun matched ballistically to the bullet that killed Peter. Ooh, in a storage locker in a department store? And it's like not a good place to keep a gun. Um, especially because in order to rent a storage locker, you have to put uh-huh. your name down. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Joan. Well, you might think that. <gasps> oh. Well, they discovered that this particular locker was rented to a woman named <gasps> Goldine Pizer. Which? Oh my. Goldine, what a bitchin' vintage name. <laughs> Goldine. Goldine. She was 43 at the time and a divorcee who was known to date women. (gasps) (gasps) (laughs) Uh, Disgusting. Abnormal. Abnormal. She worked as a laboratory technician at the Los Angeles Children's Hospital. Mm. And guess guess who she knew? John. That's right. John. Joan, so police yummy. went back to Joan and they were like, hmm, remember how you were like, we're BFF, but like this woman knows mm-hmm. you. And uh, and she was like, well, I don't know anything about it. You can ask all my neighbors. My car was parked in my driveway the entire night. And mm. neighbors corroborated it. They, they had seen her car there the entire night. So proven. So, <laughs> yep. It's like the most Innocent. solid alibi. <laughs> It's not like other people have cars. Well, in questioning some of Joan's acquaintances, detectives discovered that a friend named Margaret Barrett, or Barrett, said that she had borrowed her car that night and driven about 37 miles. Mm, mm-hmm. And when she was questioned... Yeah, other people have cars, police. When, when she was questioned about borrowing Margaret's car... She was like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I totally borrowed her car, but it was just to get groceries that night. I didn't shoot anyone. Mm-hmm. Because you know how convenient it is to, like, leave your own car in your driveway and walk a couple yeah. miles to your friend's house to borrow their car to go get groceries. Well, how else do you get groceries? <laughs> it's not like you're going to take your own no. car. Hell That's no. ridiculous. And 37 miles. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a quicker, uh, closer <laughs> grocery store. Uh, it depends on where you live. <laughs> They live in L.A. or Sun Valley, so it's like, there's going to be grocery stores, okay? (laughs) And police were like, well, we're not getting anything from you, Joan, so let's go question Mm. Goldine. Yeah, Goldie, get it. And they were like, Goldine, tell us what's going on. And she almost immediately spilled the beans. (laughs) Goldie. (laughs) She even told the detectives that it's it's a relief to get it off my mind. Oh. Yeah. She said that she never met Peter before that night, but for months, Uh-oh. Joan had gone on and on about how terrible Peter was, telling her that he oh. was abusive towards Betty and he was an evil, vile person, someone who destroys other people around him, and that he was also dealing in narcotics. So, you know. You just got to pile it all yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Why not? She told detectives that she started developing a deep hatred for him because of all the stuff that Joan was telling. Goldine said, Joan and I discussed killing Peter Fabiano many times. 
We were undecided whether we would use poison, a knife, or a gun. How does it get that far? Like, from someone venting to you about uh-huh. someone else you don't even know, to you plotting their mur- Like, how... I think it has to do with personality do you... types, too. Um, I just don't understand how, how that happened. Well, she said that on September 21st, Joan had given her money and instructions to buy a gun. Uh, Goldine told the man behind the counter that she needed something for personal protection at home. She was scared, you know, living at home as a mm-hmm. divorcee by herself. As an abnormal as woman. As an abnormal divorcee. <laughs> yeah. So he sold her a thirty-eight special, special, with two bullets. Which, I'm like, I don't know. What? If I were a gun store clerk... That would be so suspicious to me to be like. Wait, you think you think she asked for just the two? Yes. two bullets. She was instructed by Joan to buy the gun and two bullets. That is so. Yeah, that's weird. That's really weird. Mm-hmm. She was instructed to hold on to the gun until Halloween night. So Halloween night rolls around, and Joan picks up mm-hmm. Goldine in the borrowed car. She said... I just, like, Goldine had never met Betty. No, she didn't know any of these people. So she's getting all this secondhand. Mm -hmm. But she trusts Joan. She thinks that Joan is, like, the shit. Okay, you don't trust someone that much that you're gonna, like, murder someone that you've never even met for someone else you've never met. I mean, I'll tell you later, but... But she's very... Well, I mean, according to everything else, she's very, like, gullible, like, a very soft, gullible person that just... I think that she was really into Joan and Joan was very controlling over her and she didn't yeah. see it. She thought like, oh, I'm going to win Joan's affection. And, By murdering And some... I think that Joan had really made her feel like she was going to protect this other woman. Like this poor Betty is being abused and mm-hmm. no one's going to stop so this guy. So she's going to So she's going to help. Okay. She said, Joan came over to my house with some clothing Blue jeans, khaki jacket, hats, eye masks, makeup, and red gloves. Fun. Because remember, this Halloween is this is Halloween. Time. You know, and she said we got dressed up, we got in the car, and we drove to the Fabiano home, arriving about nine p.m. Which I'm not sure what their costume was, because um, that sounds like yeah, I'm wondering that. I'm gonna myself. say pretty uninspired, Joan. <laughs> It is Halloween. You have access to like all the costumes. Yeah, you could be a scary rat person, but you could no. be <laughs> scary mouse. And, from hell. and I think that she, that Joan wanted to wait till Halloween so that it wasn't suspicious. These two people in disguises walking, you know, right. wandering around. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like shitty Knocking costume. Doors. Shitty costume. Yeah, not good effort. No. So, like I said, they were they drove to Fabiano's house on Community Street, and they parked kind of close. Like they they parked close enough that they could keep an eye on the house, and they were waiting for the lights to go mm-hmm. off because then they knew that everyone would be in bed. It's a better chance that just you know he would open the door. Right. So as soon as as soon as the lights went off, Joan said, "All right, go do it." So Goldine oh. put on her mask. Walked up to the house with a gun concealed in a brown paper bag. Oh my god. I'm assuming that they were wanting the bag to look like a candy sack or something. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, 
I don't know, it's kind of weird walking up with your hand in, deep into your candy bag while you're knocking on doors. I mean a little bit. It's kind of weird looking. Yeah. Not very yeah, sly. <laughs> and your costume sucks. I don't know. It's just yeah. not eh. not very well thought out. Um, and Goldine said, I rang once and nothing happened. So I rang again. She brought the gun up with both hands. She said that she was trembling so hard that she had to steady the gun <sighs> with her other hand. And then when Peter opened the door, she fired square in the chest. Oh, God. She said, I ran to the car and Joan drove to Mrs. Barrett's home. Goldine said, uh, we left the car on the street and burned the costumes. Which, again, not really costumes in my opinion, but (laughs) maybe a disguise, but not a costume. That's kind of (laughs) far-fetched. And then Joan kissed Goldine, said thank you, and then told her, forget you ever knew me. And then they went their separate ways. What the fuck is Joan's deal? (laughs) Why is she, like, what? Okay. So Goldine. Why is she having him murdered? Well, because uh, I think, I don't, I'm pretty sure I wrote it somewhere, but I think that Joan was in love with Betty and thought that her That's that not the, good enough reason. Well, of course not. Of course not. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think that her motive Like let it go. Her motive is she's in love with Betty. She thinks if she eliminates Peter, then she can have Betty. And she talked this That's not she, I'm just gonna say that's not usually how it works. <laughs> no. But, but when okay. you're a vindictive narcissist, I think that's how you think mm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously Goldine was pretty heartbroken because I think that she really loved Joan oh. in, in her own way. She murdered someone for him. Yeah. I mean, for her. And um, her and Joan had been friends for like years. And I think like they had been talking oh. about Peter for months. So I think that uh-huh. Goldine really was in love with Joan and Joan oh. was just using her to her own. I mean, advantage. yeah, clearly. So... Um, <laughs> Goldine still had the gun, and since Joan was like, peace out, she didn't know what to do with it, so she thought, "Yeah, what am I going to do? I'll just rent a storage locker and put it in there, and no one's going to know. Because, I mean, really, if she's not connected, who's going to go looking for a storage locker in a department store? Like, I don't know who gave the tip. Maybe she gave the tip. I'm not sure. Wouldn't you just, like, go throw it in like a forest or like some river it is weird to preserve it yeah why hold on to it i'm not sure but i maybe she i mean she clearly uh, didn't know what she was doing i'm just gonna guess that she's just not the brightest person either yeah well she's working in like a laboratory Uh, but i don't know what she did there Mm. so obviously the police were like good enough we're gonna arrest you too the two women's demeanor differed in court, with Goldine often weeping or stricken with remorse, and Aww. Joan either hollow-eyed and stone-faced or smiling Ew. nonchalantly. Ew! Mm-hmm. The Valley News reported a judge ordered three psychiatrists to examine the women. Mm-hmm. One doctor who examined Goldine characterized her as a passive person who became a handy tool or putty in the hands Aww. of Mrs. Rabel. Yeah. And the same doctor described Joan as a schizoid. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was, okay, the proper diagnosis in the 50s. 
Maybe? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't mm. seem great. It doesn't seem great. It's not great, but I, I mean, you know, something's going I don't on think with accurate her. accurate either, but okay. No, more like uh, borderline or narcissistic or. Narcissistic. For sure. Sociopathic. Sociopath. Also diagnosed as uh, homosexual. <gasps> Ew, uh, that's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in 1958, Goldine ple- pleaded insanity and stated to one of the psychiatrists wow. evaluating her case, I had no motive personally. Whatever motive I had was to please Joan. I was easily influenced and I had been impressionable and always trusting. The psychiatrist later... Yeah? How do you feel about that? I mean, on all accounts, I think... I really think that she was a tool. I think that Joan orchestrated it all. And you know how people do crazy things when they're, like, in love. And especially when they're in love with a narcissist who is probably, no, not the Who can really, like, make you think that things that are real are real. Exactly. Like, a lot of gaslighting, a lot of... Yeah. I'm sure you want to believe that the person that you are in love with is a good person and is just trying to look out for other people, so... Right. I don't know. It it seemed like she really, especially since in court she was crying a lot and really remorseful and she she like admitted it immediately right away. and she was like, "Thank God I can yeah. get this off my chest because this is Ugh. fucked up." That sucks though. Some dude is dead because But also oh, I wonder okay. if Joan hadn't told her forget about me if she had been like, "All right, let, let's, you know, that We're maybe in a relationship that now? maybe she wouldn't have said anything because she would have gotten what she wanted. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I just feel like after you kill someone for someone else, the relationship kind of changes. Uh, yeah, you would assume. I feel like the guilt would kind of put a damper on that relationship. <laughs> yeah, but if you felt like you really did it for the right reason, if you thought that you were protecting another woman from abuse, and I mean maybe. I don't know. I mean, the human mind is so malleable that if you're yeah. under the influence of someone for years who you think is the love of your life and you would do anything for and this person is just right. using you, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. Yeah, I don't know. So a psychiatrist later wrote, the only thought that she, meaning Goldine, had was to, that she had to save her friend, Joan Rabel, from an evil person. Joan Joan had managed to cast a Svengali-like spell over her that she was helpless to resist. Joan also pleaded innocent. (laughs) Whatever, bitch. But both women were sentenced to five years to life in prison. (gasps) Oh. After after taking a plea deal to reduce their charge from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. Okay. Which I'm not sure how that worked. And their ca- I don't... their case landed in history as the trick-or-treat murder and was frequently cited as an example of women receiving softer treatment in the courtroom during this time. Well, here's the thing. Like, they don't... They just didn't have that much evidence, right? They Especially was... not against Joan. Right. It was a lot of Goldine. So if they saying... wanted to get Joan, they had to make a deal with Goldine. I'm sure... And they probably had to make a deal with Joan because how, what are they going to charge her with? You yeah. know, all they have is Goldine being like, this is how it is. Right. 
and and um, Margaret be saying that she had borrowed her car that night and during the time of right. the murder and. But, it's just not a strong case. But no one saw the, that actual car shitty. come down the street. Do we know how long they actually served? We do. Oh. Um. Well, first I want to say that like after Peter's death, Betty sold the beauty salons, and mm-hmm. it appears that she remarried in 1966, and that she lived out her life and died at age 81 in Palm Desert, California. Wow. Goldeen was released from prison. I think she served five years. She was released from prison and worked in the professional women's club, which like, wow, must be a lesbian dream. (laughs) (laughs) Until she. she, I hope she found love. Yeah. I mean, she had a long life. She died at the age of 83. Wow. And it's really unknown what happened with Joan. A lot of oh. things said that she also served five years and then was released, but there's, like, no no one really knows. There's little evidence. Weird. And so probably she changed her name and moved. Oh. But you'd still know, like, release date, right? Like, that's so weird. Yeah. There's, like, little ev- – or there's little said about it. Uh-huh. My question, oh, and I man. think the question on some people's mind is, was Betty involved? Yeah. Because if her and Joan had some kind of love thing or, you know, some kind of relationship happening that obviously Peter was threatened by. Right. And the thing, okay, so there's no real evidence pointing her to anything other than her wanting to reconcile her marriage. But the mm-hmm. the thing that gets me is that her account of saying that she heard two voices. That's, yeah, and that's weird. And she heard two male voices, one impersonating a woman. And if Goldine's right. account is correct, and she went up to the door by herself. She didn't say anything, though, either, did she? She, I think she had, she said, like, no or something. Like, when he said, is, isn't it a little late for this or something, she mm-hmm. said no. But... I don't know. I mean, maybe if she is like, I, I don't I know. I was going like, to say that earlier and then I totally forgot. Yeah. Why would she you She might say... have had like a, a deeper voice. I'm not sure if her voice, I don't know what her voice sounded like. So maybe it could have sounded like a man impersonating a woman if she had a deep right. voice. But why would you say you heard two voices? Well, could it be that she heard her husband's voice? Well, she did hear her husband's voice because she's the one who said that she heard him say, isn't it a little late for this? And then she heard another voice say no. Right. But reported that it, but she heard two men's voices, which I'm like, does that, is that just to throw the police off? Right. Or, or was it just something that's so, it's uh, such a traumatic event that she does, you know, she, she got mixed up what she heard. Well, like, they were in bed, so, like, was she, like, sleeping or, like, half asleep, and then she thought she hurt, you know? Like, well, I think, according hmm. to her, that, like, when Peter got up to answer the door, she woke up. Yeah. And she heard the whole thing. She heard him walk down the stairs, grab the candy bowl, open the door, say... But, I mean, you could still be in, like, a half-awake, half-asleep True. Kinda. True. And then your brain can play tricks on you. Did the daughter say that she heard anything? There's, uh, There's, like, no report of the daughter other than her them saying that she woke up and you know rushed down the stairs or whatever to see what was going on Mm. but that's just like the only thing that really throws me 
Yeah, I could see it. I could see it either way. I could see it that she really wanted to make her marriage work and then like got out of that relationship with Joan and was kind of like, yeah, fine. I won't talk to her or whatever mm-hmm. anymore. And then Joan, and then Joan was like, like slighted. Lover. Yeah, because now like the person that she thought she had control, especially if she's like a narcissist or like mm-hmm. has, you know, some mental health stuff going on. She could be like, you know, this person I thought I had control over, I don't mm-hmm. and I can't handle it. Or I mean, but then. I don't know. Why would you go back? If That's you're going like, to work understand. on a separation, you could just separate, you know, and you could just like finalize your divorce. Why would you go back just to have him killed? But then you're going to sell your business anyway. So it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make like, sense. Like maybe right? she'd like kept the business going. Like unless, you know, she, she was like the inside person and was like, OK, when you see the lights go out, that's the signal to... But but, but like it seemed like that, obvious, yeah, it's, right? it seemed like that Joan yeah. already had that plan. But that's no, I feel like maybe she was just kind of in like her hat. Like when you are in that state, you kind of like hear things or your brain. Like I've thought some crazy shit in that state, or I like thought I heard something. You know when? Yeah, yeah. Or she could have been like trying to fill in the blanks and like maybe misplacing a previous time that like he answered the door at night, or I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, there's really no evidence to point to her having anything to yeah. do with it because there's no evidence of her and Joan keeping in touch at all. Right. That's what I was going to ask. But too. again, there's no evidence of Joan. So she could have completely changed her mm. name and, you know, still had contact no, but like with her. When, but... when they were doing their trial, when they were after the separation, when he's like, I don't want you to have contact with her. Was there any evidence that they had contact in that time? No, there's no evidence at all. Like, maybe she really did cut off contact. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that she had anything to do with it. I do think it's weird, the the man sounding like a woman thing. <laughs> so one article. But then it could be like. One article point it, was like, a man sounding like a woman, you mean like a lesbian? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, to We be, all know how lesbians sound. I mean, sound. to be fair, Joan looks pretty butch. But, again, according to Goldine, Joan stayed in the car the entire time. Right. Well, I was thinking, I was kind of thinking it could have been, like, someone who just had, like, a deeper voice. Or maybe you're, like, scared. So you're like, no. You know, like, maybe it's deeper. Well, and your, Maybe she was just like, I heard two voices. When, when your first prejudice is like, oh, it's probably a man. Like, how often do women commit acts of just, like, walking up to random houses and shooting? So your prejudice yeah. is like, oh, it must have been a man. My What I heard was probably not correct. Or I don't know. I'm just wondering if they interpreted it wrong when she was like, I heard two voices, a man and a man sounding like a woman. Maybe it was like her, was husband her husband and hmm. that could what's be. her face? Goldine. Goldine. How could you ever forget such a beautiful name? I know. How could I forget her name? I need Goldine. to bring back that name. Goldine. Goldine. So yeah, I told you my, wow. my story was pretty short, but it was, I thought it was kind of interesting. I don't. The toss salad and the scrambled egg. Tossed salad, a scrambled egg. Okay, tossed salad, scrambled egg. Mm-hmm. I don't think Goldine was insane. I think that she was definitely like very manipulated. Yeah. I think that she was in a scrambled egg place. I don't think that she was. Like she didn't quite knew what she was doing. Well, I think that um, Joan. Yeah, I think that Joan like scrambled her egg <laughs> by. Her reality. Right, yeah. by like just. Constantly yeah. telling her all this fucked up stuff, like it, that Peter was this horrible monster who took advantage of women, and 
She right. thought that she was really doing something to help, but then once Gold, once Joan was like, "Okay, bye. You did my dirty work." Then Goldine's like, "Wait a second. The spell yeah. is being lifted. I just murdered someone for you, and you are like, okay, goodbye." Yeah. So I think that. She, and then Joan's just like a shit salad. Yeah, Joan is a total toss salad. She knew what she was doing, and she planned it all out. Says she planned for months. Yeah. 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 And she only got five years. Another innocent person dead. Mm-hmm. Just because. Five years. Of... Just like my story. We only mm-hmm. got like a couple years for like beating a, an innocent woman to death. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Love it. Justice. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> Beware of people wearing khaki coats, blue jeans, red gloves, and a, they call it a domino mask. Do you know? It's just like the one that like covers your eyes. Covers your eyes? You know, like, oh, like the, a Batman mask? Kind of, where it's just like a, like a yeah. little masquerade okay. mask or whatever. And then yeah, it said yeah. that she had like colored her face in, like the rest of her face in with like some kind of makeup. I just like with all the masks you could have got <laughs> in the fifties for Halloween. I mean, like shit. put a bag. On I your was head just and get the holes out. I was just gonna say that. Put That'd be like ba- more effective. Put a fucking sheet over your body and go as a ghost. Like, <laughs> then you can hide the gun so yes. easily just under the sheet. <laughs> just wasn't thought out well, Joan. <sighs> and then when you burn the costume, you burn the sheet. One sheet, not all these things. So easy. <laughs> Oh. Oh. Wow. Wow. Yep. That's that. That was depressing. (laughs) This whole episode's been depressing. I mean, our whole podcast is depressing. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Except for Cry Many Sakes. All right. You want to do some Cry Many Sakes? And now for the portion that we like to call Cry Many Sakes, where we tell you silly stories about crime. That make you forget the terrible things we just told you. Yeah, I don't have any because I don't have internet access okay. right now. Okay, I have a couple. This this one okay. is like two sentences. Perfect. I got it from ComedyCentral.com. It says, um, this took place at a Walmart. Ah, so you know Walmart. it's good. Police, police reserve... Res- Police received a report of a newborn infant found in a trash can. (gasps) Oh, no. Upon investigation, officers discovered it was only a burrito. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? That must have been a huge burrito. a burrito what was a that wet line? burrito it was the episode of fraser where he had to take the bus public transportation he was like oh and i slipped in what i can only hope was an old burrito <laughs> oh my god that was so good who like glanced in and like, was so freaked out they immediately like, shut it and called the police <laughs> 
your fear is running into like a dead body. My fear is running into an, an old, old burrito. burrito that could be confused for <laughs> that a baby. That looks like a body. <laughs> God, how ugly is that image if it's looking like a burrito? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Okay. That was so funny. And this one is from funnyordie.com. It said, A woman named Michelle Wright returned home after work on Tuesday night and found her driveway missing. (gasps) That's right. She pulled into (laughs) her driveway like normal and immediately felt the front wheels go down further than they should have. Witnesses say they saw men digging up 300 square feet of bricks while she was gone for the day. Oh, my God. And it didn't seem too suspicious because there were other workers building a barn on her property. So they were able <laughs> to load the bricks up into a truck and take off. Bricks are valuable. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And one more from ComedyCentral.com also. Okay. South Australian police are spreading resources to find thieves who made off with 42 kilograms of mayonnaise. I've never heard mayonnaise measured in kilograms before. (laughs) Well, it's Australian. Two 21-kilogram tubs of the condiment went missing from a Wyala warehouse. Police say they were puzzled why anyone would steal so much. They asked that anyone anyone seen making large potato salads or coleslaw (laughs) should be treated suspiciously. I feel like if someone wants that much mayonnaise, just like leave them alone. <laughs> you don't want to know what they're using it for. <laughs> then again, you know how I feel about mayonnaise. So I'm kind of like good riddance. Mm, love some food lube. Ugh. Makes it slip right down your gullet. It was. Yeah, no. The words are enough to explain. Disgusting. I like a good mayo. Ew. Ew. So, That's, yeah, those are the That was good. <laughs> That was good. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for everyone. listening. Um, we uh, Check out HumblebeeHerbal.com. Get some soaps. Get some bath products. Treat yourself to something nice during this horrible time. Treat yourself. Treat your mental health. You probably like, need to wash yourself important. off after hearing our horrible tales. <laughs> yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. Just take care of yourselves. Be good to each other. And we will to each other. talk to you, talk at you next week. If you uh, want to tell us anything, any stories, any kind of anything, tell us that we're whatever. Yeah. Email us at crimeanypodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Rate, review, subscribe. Let us know how we're doing. And we will speak at you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.